0: Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, lads and lassies, and those that don't subscribe to a gender, welcome to the GOT Questions podcast with Spencer and Lee. Spencer, say hey to the people. Hey there, guys. Hey there, Spencer. Indeed. We are here for episode three of the Got Questions podcast. Today we're tackling season seven, episode three, titled The Queen's Justice. For those of you that are just catching us for the first time... This is a podcast dedicated to refreshing you a little bit about Game of Thrones. We're going through season seven, episode by episode. After this is over, we'll probably do some previous uh, uh, seasons as well to get us all ready for episode eight. Our goal is to talk about the show. Maybe point out some things you haven't noticed before. Maybe make you laugh along the way, uh, and and hopefully you know make your day a little bit better. Spencer, anything else you want to add?
1: Uh, if, and if you just want to hate on us for the quality of our material, we are open to that too. We respond on both positive and negative feedback, which kind of sums up most of our friendship. I feel like.
0: Yeah, I don't. I think that goes without being said, right? It's the internet. Like, so we're going to get the hate.
1: We assume we assume we're going to get at least ninety five percent scorn, and that remaining five percent will just make everything. I won't say worthwhile, but somewhat less painful.
0: All right, Spencer. Big announcement coming here in the oh. episode two. We told the viewers that we, of listeners, that we have six listeners. Um, <gasps> I'm, I'm happy to report it's higher than six now. So
1: we did, did it. You're kidding. Did, did, we, yeah, make, okay. did, so did nice. we make? did we make twelve? It's,
0: it's it's over six. It's less than half a million. So it's somewhere in that gray area.
1: You know, I appreciate the breadth of the figures that you give me. These are the kind of statistics I can actually make some use of.
0: <laughs> All right, good. And, and for those that were a little concerned about me, um, it, I can confirm that it has indeed stopped raining in North Carolina. So praise be. You know, praise there, be. It is-
1: there were many local residents that were hoping for a biblical flood. So for those people, we do apologize. We don't mean to, to, to quash your hopes right now. Okay. A quick,
0: quick piece of uh, housekeeping. Episode two just went up. Uh, this, is, um, this is Tuesday, August 7th. Uh, episode two has just gone up on the website. Uh, we're hoping that before episode three comes out, uh, we'll actually have the podcast set up on iTunes and we'll have SoundCloud, Stitcher, all the usual places that you get your podcast podcast all set up. So that way, you know, you're not having to access it on a browser. You can actually go in and get it like any other podcast. Uh, Podcast that you have uh, in your podcast feed.
1: Is there so, is there any hope of Telegraph? I mean, I was hoping for Telegraph or Carrier Pigeon before we were done. You know, appeal to my level of technology understanding.
0: Uh, I think what I'm just going to have is, like, have an 85-year-old lady just jot it all down in shorthand. Uh, okay, and then I'm we'll okay just with cir- that. Circulate the notes,
1: we'll does, scan it, fax it. Does she do cuneiform? Because I think shorthand may be a little bit too modern for my understanding.
0: I'll get with her, but, but before that, we'll, uh, we'll actually go ahead and just use the... Uh, The old rusty tin can that I'm recording into right now.
1: (laughs) I I appreciate using the classics.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great. Okay, so like I mentioned, this is uh, the episode... Three of season seven, titled The Queen's Justice. A little bit of a spoilery title there. I think uh, you kind of get a a sense of what's going on. I I think they got away with it because we have so many queens right now. You don't really know who they're talking about, but it becomes pretty clear as you get into the episode. So we'll start with the opening credits. Spencer, still the Baratheon sigil over King's Landing.
1: Which gets even more egregious with certain symbolism and certain scenes that they showed this episode. It is clear that the animators and and, and scene designers of the uh, Game of Thrones series have just stopped giving a damn.
0: You have been copying off my paper, sir, because that's all my notes. Uh, yeah, so Brackley and Sigil still over King's Landing. I, I threw a, a glass at the television when I saw it. One other thing, only thing I want to point out about the opening credits this episode is, um, do you know who gets
1: last billing? You know, I didn't notice. Who, uh, is, this, is this of the main actual acting cast? Yeah, I, yeah. You know how they always do the, like, this one and this one, and then at the end they go with so-and-so? Who is who is the with? I didn't notice. Ian Glenn. Really? Sojourn Mormont. Yes. Ian Glenn is guest starring on this show.
0: The baritone of Westeros. Yes, he he gets last billing. So it was it was England. I noticed that one pointed out.
1: You think they were intentionally doing that to leave his ultimate fate somewhat ambiguous? Like, you know, keep him as, a, as an additional bit character under maybe giving making people worried that he was gonna be written out? Maybe. I mean, he has
0: been kind of in the episodes inconsistently recently, so maybe the terms of his contract or something changed.
1: Well, you know, dying of leprosy and being under literal quarantine tends to interfere with one's appearances in most things. Ah, but he did not die. Shout out Samuel Tarley. And we will address that scene and its many, many problems. All right. Just remember, Spencer, book nerd bitching gets saved till the end. (laughs) I, I do not need book nerd bitching to criticize the show. I have many options. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh man i can feel the hot takes coming off you right now okay we get through the opening credits uh so the opening scene is john is on a, a small skift and he's coming ashore on dragonstone mm-hmm. he's greeted by Tyrion. i love the exchange Tyrion just goes so the bastard of winterfell and it, john in one of his like few moments where he actually retorts pretty well just goes the dwarf of gasterly rock and that's how they, they meet. I thought that was pretty cool.
1: I, I have to believe that John received prior advance notice and we're preparing that line for the entire naval voyage. I mean, he knew that Tyrion was there. You've got to believe that John wasn't quick enough on his feet to pu- get that one out. Yeah, maybe Davos fed him the line. <laughs> possible. Very possible. So then Missandei does the formal introduction. Our queen
0: welcomes you to Dragonstone. If you don't mind, please hand over your weapons. So right off the bat... Power you know, play. Yeah, Tyrion and John. Exactly. Yeah, the big boy move there. Tyrion and John, of course, do have a shared history. They they have a mutual admiration for each other, but this is still a tense situation. Uh, so John doesn't hesitate. Well, he hesitates a little bit, but he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't uh, complain about it. He actually hands over his weapons. So does all of his people. Hmm. And they continue to talk. Uh, at some, one point, <laughs> I really liked uh, is is Davos says, oh, "I'm Davos Seaworth," and Tyrion immediately recognizes the name.
1: I, pre- I appreciate the realism the show's been doing all season of where people don't recognize each other by faces. This is an era before the internet, before even a printing press. Major sketches of people would not be found. You wouldn't just recognize somebody by sight. Their names, on the other hand, can carry a lot of meaning and go much farther than they do. Um, and I appreciate pretty much all of Danny's alliances are really awkward. Is Tyrion's basically been at war with almost everybody on this show at some point or another. Davos just kind of adds to the list of people that I either killed uh, tried to kill to protect myself or people that I was actively at war with only a couple seasons back. Yeah, I'll see what this
0: is. Danny choosing Tyrion as her hand
1: is like the bulls
0: in the mid-90s picking up Dennis Rodman. It's like, look, hey... High upside here, but it could go the other way quickly. You can te- go sideways on you fast.
1: You test me, sir. You test me. My Google skills is going to lose so fast as we're already doing the, N- the NBA stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like you're picking up Rod and you're like, ah, good rebounder, hustle guy, but man, I don't know. Sometimes, you know, he does his hair pink, so I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, it, mm-hmm. um, they turn toward Dragonstone and they start to go... Uh, up that long hike that they have to get up to the main castle, Davos attempts to make a little small talk with Masende, which I really like. Uh, he came <laughs> up and he's like, oh, Missendei of oh, Here's beautiful, right? And Missendei straight ices him, doesn't say yeah. a thing. And then Davos goes back to John and goes, this place has
1: changed. <laughs> And I love the filming they do during that scene. The show deserves some credit that they've been really trying to do some different means and different styles of of doing their scenes nowadays. And this large panning, tracking, rotating shot while they're doing this walk and talk is just beautiful. I would love to know where they filmed. Where is the actual Dragonstone? I'm guessing it's somewhere off the coast of Croatia like everywhere else they're doing. But good lord, that's a beautiful set that they're walking through.
0: Get the watchers on the wall, guys. On the horn, they can tell you. I'm sure. I'm sure they had drones
1: on set. Probably did. They're always on top of things.
0: All right. So then Tyrion asked about Sansa, which I thought was really funny. Does she miss me so? <laughs> John John seemed a little put off at the joke, but so Tyrion felt the need to follow up and say that it was a sham marriage that wasn't consummated. John looked about as uncomfortable at that line as Arya did at Hot Pie telling her she was pretty last episode. <laughs> pretty uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And then uh, John starts talking. He says, you know, basically his advisors told him not to come. And, and Tyrion's like, yeah, I would have told you the same thing if you'd asked me. <laughs> I think it's kind of crazy you're here, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was a, again, it's, it's coming up. Snake Eyes here for John. He's got to give his sword up. Everybody there is telling him, yeah, it's a little nuts that you came. Uh, and then it gets even worse because Drogon comes overhead. And it, it was, it's a really funny moment because I think this is exactly what would happen where John and Davos just hit the deck. Like they oh, just yeah. jump right down, but Missendei and Tyrion are used to it. So they're still standing there. So you have <laughs> this kind of comical moment where John and Davos just look completely ridiculous. Yeah. I think Tyrion taking it, taking it to the deck.
1: I think Tyrion even says, I'd like to say you get used to them, but you never really do. Um, there, there are a couple little scenes there that I particularly liked of where, um, Basically, we're going to need to start doing a drinking game for every episode that Jon Snow says at least once that he isn't a Stark, because that did come up again. Notably for this one, though, at the moment he says, I'm not a Stark, a giant dragon flies immediately over his head. This seems to be just the world of Westeros indicating to everyone present that, think dragons with this man
0: yeah they do they do and this is this is the first time they do it but you'll see when he's on dragonstone you see these little cutaways or the placement of certain characters they they're trying to inch you toward it mm-hmm. uh, so then we we cut from there they're still continuing the walk and we see Varys. he's meeting with Melisandre on like a cliff somewhere mm-hmm. and varies Peak varies mode here. He's being very pompous because he's caught Melisandre in a weak moment, and he's like, "Hmm, you told us to summon the King of the North, but here you are hiding on a cliff. I didn't take you for a shy girl." Uh, Melisandre doesn't, you know, she's she's not gonna lie about this. She says, "Look, I I didn't part well with the King of the North or his advisor." Uh, It's because of mistakes I made, and she actually says horrible mistakes. Now, I know you're a big Melisandre fan, so do you want to talk about character development here? Well,
1: I do appreciate—I mean, we've not really reached this point for Mel in the book. She's not gone through the loss of, you know, everything that she's held dear and the ultimate flaw of all of her faith and her own ability to to do prophecy and everything else. So seeing her humbled, seeing (sighs) her— Not trying to even duel wits with Varys or anything else. Just seeing her accept the world and accept a much more minimal role in it. shes It's a—it's an interesting role of Mel as more of a passive observer and supporter than everything that she's really pertained to. Everything that she's really imagined she was capable of before. So it, it's a very interesting position for her on the show. I think I, I appreciate it. I also appreciate Varys' just utterly undisguised disdain for her he is reveling in seeing her in a position of weakness and feeling like that she is diminished and weakened before him. Because as we've seen before, Varys and magic and anyone who who, uh, practices magic are kind of oil and water.
0: Yeah, he's very much like the maesters that way. He doesn't trust magic, and he he certainly likes that he kind of has... Uh, Melisandra um, uh, by the balls, as you would say. Um, <laughs> you could he, potentially say for Varys the eunuch. I, do,
1: yeah, I don't think he would personally um, use that phrase. I think you might deem that offensive. If you'd like to apologize to him now and for all the other eunuch listeners that we have, we'll give a brief moment for that.
0: Yeah, apologies. Okay. Apologies. Sorry about that. Well done. RIP. Uh, Melisandra does give one final I don't know, would you call this a prophecy or just sort of a prediction? Um, but she tells Varies, like, look, very, very 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 pompously says, well, you probably don't need to come back here. Like, you're not going to be safe here. And she goes, oh, old spider, I've got to come back to this strange country. I'm going to die here, just like
1: you. And again, we see a moment of Varys truly rattled. And I feel like we need to count these moments just for how rare they are.
0: Yeah. So then we cut to John, He's walking into the throne room again. I can't say enough about what the show did with this Dragonstone throne room. Oh, I think it's gorgeous. Beautiful. Yeah, and it's a, it's just, a, you know, really important scenes go down here this episode, or this this episode, but also this season. So it's great that they took the care in actually creating a space that is believable when you look at it. And it conveys what you want to convey if you are a ruler and someone else is coming to visit you, the grandeur. I mean, she's sitting so far away, you can't even really see her. Mm-hmm. There's got, like a host of guards in front of her. So, it, it, you know, it she looks very much the queen as he walks in. And, and then you get Miss um,
1: just. <laughs> <laughs> Professional MC un- versus amateur here.
0: <laughs> the unburnt the Breaker of Chains. She's gone on and on and on and on. And we cut to, uh, and we're going to go ahead and nominate this for Best Line of oh, the Episode. Please do. Please do. Uh, Davos. <laughs> this is John's. Oh, she's kicking it off. <laughs>
1: That's yes. it. That's I, all I can say. I, I love that they clearly didn't plan anything, but the point where John just kind of. Somewhat shyly turns to Davos and says, G- "Give me something here, please.
0: You got to introduce me, I think. Uh,
1: okay. I, is I, all I know. <laughs> I love that. It really is just such an example of how different a style of rule and different characters that uh, Danny and John are at this point. That Danny is all about pretense. She's all about the trappings of rule. Her, imper- her the imperious nature of who she is and what she represents just apparent the moment you walk in the room. John is none of that and seems to make it a fundamental basis of who he is, that he isn't about trappings. He isn't about these various ceremonial aspects of rule. He's much more authentic, which, you know, Davos does a much better job of them seeing him on this point here in a second.
0: Yeah,
1: I agree with you. Um, I think
0: that this juxtaposition to me endear, engenders John to me much more. Oh yeah, uh, it's much more so real. A, as a ruler, we've always liked him as a man, but as like an actual king, we don't. He's got a very short resume, so the way he kind of deals with this and the way he presents himself, I I really liked
1: it. Oh, well, very much. Um, one thing I'll just one thing, one just to go back briefly to one point. Uh, do you remember who we we have heard before about Melisandre dying, about her seeing her own death? Do you remember who she saw was going to inflict it upon her?
0: Oh my God, Spencer getting on the scoreboard right away. It's only um, been three
1: years, come on. Uh, no, I don't. Uh, she looked in Arya's eyes and saw her own death. It, that's the book though, right? No, that is... They don't tell you that in the show. That is straight up show when uh, Melisandre goes to pick up Gendry uh, and she runs briefly... Oh, I remember briefly. the scene, yeah. I, go back and look at it. She looks in Arya's eyes and sees the death of many people, including, I believe, her own death. And the fact that she now just spoke of her own death in the same sentence as Varys Leaves me to ponder whether Varys might ultimately be on Arya's list
0: Yeah, we're going to have to go to the re- replay booth there I'm not giving you that point yet um, uh, We'll check that out and then we'll we'll adjust the scoreboard necessary, as necessary All <laughs> Damn, right, so damn stoppage to, time <laughs> to, I mean, right away, off Jump Street Danny's like been the name, basically like, Oh um, yeah,
1: go into history, Again, you know,
0: yeah, and it comes up in an interesting way. I thought, um, and I, I actually thought they were doing a little like tip the hat to a potential prequel situation here because, you know, basically, Danny goes, "My lord," and Davos cuts her off and says, "Hey, look, I know I've got a flea bottom max in here, but Jon Snow's a king.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: he's not a lord." And Danny says, "That's interesting. And, you know, the last Stark king that I knew of is Torrhen Stark, who bent the knee to my ancestor Aegon Targaryen mm-hmm. and pledged loyalty to House." Uh, Targaryen in perpetuity. Uh-huh. Uh, Tyrion helpfully clarifies that in perpetuity means forever.
1: <laughs> Delightfully <laughs> pedantic. Are you going to
0: bend the knee? Are you, bend the knee? Are, you, are you here to swear fealty to me? And Jon says no.
1: Yeah, I, I'm I'm very glad that Jon didn't. I was somewhat worried when he was first going down here, when I first watched the episode, that he was going to almost immediately submit to Danny just to get whatever he could out of her. The fact that he actually shows a bit of northern defiance, that he actually tries to represent his people's interest, is much more authentic for John, and I loved it.
0: Well, no, I think that bending and the Knee is like the main bargaining chip he has. He can't just give that away right now.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, it, as you said, that's one of the few things he has to offer her, is, her mil- is his military support and loyalty. So I guess that is something that he would keep hanging for as long as possible.
0: That's my guess. I mean, without any sort of... Um, promise to go fight the army of the dead i don't think he's been in the knee because that's the only thing that he has that she wants
1: and he definitely th- does throw in the army of the dead he, john must john himself must be getting tired of trying to sell this to people because it doesn't really work
0: yeah he does any day he, he expresses he looks frustrated here he expresses his frustration in a conversation later in the episode because he does mention it he goes look um you know I need your help, and you need mine. Which Danny kind of, you know, gets that good Cersei posture because that kind of prickles. She felt a little prickly about that. Uh-huh. And then he says, "Look, we're all children." And Danny cuts him off. Doesn't oh like yeah. That speaks to boss move of speaking directly to somebody else in the room about the person who was just talking to you, right? Uh-huh. Like just looking at a Tyrion and be like, "This man," blah 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 blah. A pretty big boss move there from Danny. Uh-huh. Tyrion basically says, "Look, it's a turn of phrase. He called himself a child too." basically settle down. Mm -hmm. And John says, look, there's an army of the dead marching army of dead men marching. And everybody just kind of gets quiet and looks around. Doesn't really know what to do with that. Danny stands up and starts to walk toward John and she starts to go into her story, which is pretty brutal. She talks about being sold, being raped, being beaten. Um, all of the things that happened to her over in Essos, uh, when she was running away from Robert Baratheon's guards and her brother was trying to use her, to basically get himself an army through the Dothraki. And and a lot of stuff has happened to her. So she makes mention of that. And she says, you know what kept me going? Belief in herself. She has a faith in herself and what she can do, which I thought was a great, like sort of empowering moment for Danny where Danny goes, look, I've been dealing with all this crap, but I got through it because I know that this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to rule the seven kingdoms and I'm here.
1: Yeah. She she clearly has all the self-confidence that John lacks. She is absolutely certain based on what the fires that she's endured, based on everything else she's weathered. She is convinced of her destiny and convinced about what else that she can endure and will do to accomplish it in all the ways that John is not.
0: Yeah. And Davos here, I think, he, he he starts to pick his moment because I think he realizes like look, I'm one of the all-time role players of Westeros. I gotta <laughs> speak up here and help John. John's getting bullied a little bit in this conversation, so he does the character witness for John. Starts saying look, John was elected Lord Commander of the Night's Watch because they all trusted him. He's united the wildlings with the North. He won the Battle of the Bastards. He's done this. He's done that. And at the end, he goes he took a knife in the heart for his people, oh, and yeah. John shoots him a pretty vicious look um that that really obviously said shut up and don't mention that again and Danny kind of looks like a little peculiar there when I first watched this scene Spencer and tell me if I'm crazy here um I, I noticed that Danny latched on to this mm-hmm. part about you know John taking a knife through the heart and I, I thought she was gonna this was gonna stick in her crawl I thought she was gonna bring this up again and it turns out later on in the episode and later on uh in the season that that turns out to be true. And I thought that because I think at this point, Danny knows that there is something magical about her. Mm Mm-hmm she can't be burned. She's got dragons. She's convinced people to move mountains for her. She knows that there is a otherworldliness about her and she's looking for that in anyone else that she is going to put remotely on a level with her. And by hearing this thing about John took a knife in the heart, wait, wait, that, that's, that goes down that alley for her. And I thought she was going to latch onto it. And she turns out that she did. So uh, that's kind of what I, I view how I viewed that conversation and how I viewed where Danny is coming from and the relationships that she has with other powerful
1: people. That's an interesting point. I mean, it kind of goes into some of the loneliness that is Danny. I mean, for much, for, for all that she talks about that she is the mother of her people, the mother of dragons, for all of this collections of separate elements she's brought around her, it's kind of lonely on the top for her. I mean, she feels like that she can never have children again. She's pretty much ostracized herself from, from relationships when she exiled Dario. And with respect to magic, in many ways, she feels like that as the last Targaryen, she's kind of the last bit of magic left in this world. So, yeah, that's an interesting idea that she might be searching for someone that she can in some way relate to, at least relate to this aspect of who she is. That's right. I have interesting ideas. And then <laughs> uh,
0: Danny, Danny says basically, like, oh, that's great, Davos cool cool story uh but you know i am the rightful ruler of the seven kingdoms and by declaring yourself king in the north john you were in open rebellion and when she uses the phrase open rebellion i don't know if you caught it but like john kind of shudders yeah <laughs> it's like this it's like the same look like when i first looked at the calorie count on a chick-fil-a sandwich I was just like oh don't do oh, that
1: never do that oh, and she
0: say that focus on flavor don't <laughs> look do for that. details <laughs> It hit him in the gut. <laughs> it was an open rebellion. Oh God! Well, anyway, then v- varies comes in, and I do. You, when you
1: watch these episodes, do you watch it with the closed captioning on? I do, which I could never have heard what he said otherwise.
0: Yep, yeah, I, I do too. And that's, that's the point I was going to raise is that he comes in and he basically tells Danny to send John and Davos away that he has grave news he'd like to discuss with her. So she does just that in a pretty tactful manner. She just goes, you know, madam where are my manners? I'm sure you're tired. Uh, go to your chambers and I'll bring a meal to you. Whereas then
1: John asks the pertinent question, uh, you know, am I your prisoner? And she just says, not yet. Which is again, such a delightfully powerful play. Of where this is Danny essentially saying that her view of individual choice, her view of freedom of will, is kind of a Hobson's choice of where you either can accept my view or you accept what I choose to inflict upon you.
0: hmm Yeah. So then John and Dallas leave, and Varys explains that Yara's fleet was attacked and destroyed by Euron. The you know the the Greyjoys attacked, uh, destroyed or. Captured, I believe, is the phrase he was using. The Sand Snakes, uh, the Dornish uh, emissary there, either killed or captured. And then Danny asks if all of the boys are dead, and we smash cut to Theon, who is not dead, who is being pulled up the side of one of the last remaining ships uh, from Yara's fleet. And he gets dumped down into the deck, and he explains that Euron has Yara. He saw our taker. He tried to. I think he says something along the lines of like I, I tried. There's nothing I could do. And this big gruff of a man walks over and goes, you know,
1: if you tried, you wouldn't be here. And then he just turns around. <laughs> uh, one scene I want to go back to. So every now and then, even I like to engage in a bit of show only theorizing. And I'm curious of your view on a certain point. Uh, when Danny is dealing with John, one of the first things that she says back to him is to ask forgiveness for her father's crimes. And then she very specifically asks him not to judge a daughter by the sins of her father. Now this is very much in keeping with what Danny's been doing, but that word choice is straight John, what? An episode two ago up in the north dealing with deciding what to do with the Umbers and Karstarks? Is, mm-hmm. the, is this suggest, suggestive that Varus has some spies reestablished in the north feeding information? possibly feeding to Danny the points that will very much get in John's crawl will very much affect his decision-making your thoughts, sir. I am, look, I am on the corner of various
0: has another angle here that mm-hmm. this is not, we're not seeing all of the cards on the table. That one seems a little bit of a stretch. Um, just because I feel like she probably would have, there would be other indications mm-hmm. in the, in the conversation that she had some Intel about him or that she knew, what would motivate him because everything else she does is not the way to motivate John. You don't motivate John by saying I'm the rightful ruler. like that's no. And he even, he even gets to that point. Uh, we, we can go back a little bit because at one point, John, who has looked like a beat dog since he's come up on Dragonstone does kind of distemper flares a little bit. And he he's does. like, why? Why would I? Why would I bend the knee to you? Best I can tell, your claim rests on the name of your father. You know, your father who burnt my grandfather, mm-hmm. burnt my uncle, who my father went to war to overthrow. Why would I bend my knee to you just because of
1: your name? Hats off to John for that scene. That was surprisingly forceful for a guy who, not a second earlier, looked like he was walking to his own execution. Yeah,
0: his temper flared a little bit there. I kind of liked it. I think that Danny probably didn't like it in the moment, but once she got away from him and her, her mad queen bars were lowered, uh, she probably respected
1: it. It's always uncertain with Danny what she actually thinks or views. She's so willing to put on the queenly mask. You're never really sure what Danny herself believes or wants. So there's always a fine line to walk.
0: Right. Well, then we smash cut to. Euron, he, uh, he is dunking all over everybody in King's Landing here because he has got – he's on a, a horse, and he's got Yara, Alario, and Tyene uh, on leashes, and he's he's walking them through the streets of King's Landing.
1: <laughs> and just utterly <laughs> now, glaring in it. Point, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just saying it's delightful how much he's glaring in it, that he has his own personal ovation here, and he is just chewing the scenery with every step he takes.
0: And he explains that to Yara. I'm, I'm not going to work blue here, Spencer. I'm not like you. But he does say that uh, it, it, it did excite him in a, in a very particular way.
1: You're going to you're, gonna, you're uh, gonna euphemism Game of Thrones? You're really going to try to PG a Game of Thrones podcast?
0: That's right, Spencer. That's because this podcast is by the people for the people. We want people uh, in the car with their kids to be able to listen to this podcast
1: and not have to turn it off because you insist on working blue. I apologize to all the people who are too, long, too young to watch Game of Thrones. Being offended by the podcast on Game of Thrones.
0: Yeah, okay, good. That sounded sincere. I tried. All right, and then we see we see Euron, he's walking up. And now this is the point that I think you were
1: raising when I was complaining about the opening credits. Yet again, yep.
0: there are Lannister sigils outside of
1: King's Landing. Everywhere. Everything is red lot red and gold lines. Everywhere.
0: Not one damn deer to be found. It's just a bunch of Lannister
1: sigils. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, couldn't you put a couple guys with you know, the, with the, with the um, Baratheon colors out front, just a couple flags, keep the throne room to yourself, but at least try to convince the people you're actually a legitimate successor? Nothing! Just, come on, show producers, this is a very, you think this would be a very simple thing to fix in the intro.
0: Yeah, and, and everything else we see from Cersei this episode—I mean, we'll get into other scenes—but she's very much like I'm queen. I do what I want, and I, I, I have no pretense about it. I took the throne by might, and it is mine. And I don't think that she needs to kowtow to the Baratheon sigil at this point. So I don't think you're going to find one in King's Landing. So I got a side little tangent here for you, Spencer. Please. Uh, I was thinking—I was thinking the other day. You know I like the NBA. You know I like sports. It's
1: come you know up, I like yes. Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm.
0: I was wondering, I was compiling a list of the biggest bandwagon fans of all time, and here's what I got to, all right? Three, you've got probably Bulls fans in the early 90s. Okay. I say that because how many Chicago Bulls jerseys do you
1: see now? Uh, Even I can say lots.
0: Yeah, you do, but they're Jordan jerseys. You're not seeing any jersey of actual Chicago Bulls that are
1: playing now. No, I mean, it's very much a legacy kind of thing.
0: Yeah, so all these people who are big Bulls fans, yeah, where are you now? Name me your part starting point guard, please. Can't do it. Two, and this is obvious Patriots fans. Mm. I mean, nobody likes Boston, but yeah, now we have all these Tom Brady jerseys, and it's just because he keeps winning Super Bowls. Uh, so that's number two. And then number one is everyone in King's Landing. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah. And are you kidding me? You're cheering Euron. You're now in the, in the throne room cheering the Queen. We're we're a season and a couple episodes ago from you throwing shit on her
1: as she walked naked through the streets. Yeah. Man, these are some bandwagon fans. It, they are. And I think Euron really had a pretty good quote on this point, um, of where he, you know, there, Jamie puts points out to him. At literally, what you just said that you know they were. Cheering as she was being forced through the streets, they were cheering when various people's heads were cut off. And Euron just responds, "Or yours? They just like severed heads, really." <laughs> yeah, it's a we- good point. It's a good point. They like winning, right? That—that—that's that, what it is. Severed
0: heads, winning. So, uh, yeah, that, yep. that n- number one with a bullet, biggest bandwagon fans of all time, everybody in King's Landing. So, right. Spencer, I want to play a little game here. I want you to be oh. Euron.
1: Uh, okay, okay. I'm adding swagger to wow. my be. Adding swagger, trying, trying, failing. Okay, try it now. It's not going to be hard for you to get in that headspace. So you are Euron,
0: mm-hmm. and i got two questions for you, if you can answer them for me. One is, why are you including Yara in this spectacle? You're not giving Yara to the queen. She's yours. Why Why did you parade her in and out of the Red Keep?
1: Uh, well, I would say I would offer two reasons, and I'm probably being a little bit more logical about this than Euron is. Uh, point number one, it is a full display of power. It is, again, showing imperiously who he has conquered. Even if it isn't part of the gift, it is still part of his personal triumph. That Even going back to ancient Roman history, that when they were in a triumph, the, their defeated enemies would ride with them, be it their bodies, be it them still alive as captured, as captured prisoners. They would be emblems of their success. She is a necessary token of what he's accomplished. So I think point number one there. Point number two is just purely petty. She defied him. She mocked him. She challenged him. He's looking to humiliate her. It's not just purely about showing off to the world. He wants to show personally to her that he is lord over her, that he controls her fate. He may even be leaving it ambiguous to her or what he intends to do with her. This may be psychological torture and dragging her to the throne room just so she's not certain what's about to happen. Yeah, well, I saw Yara's face. He hadn't broke her yet. No, <laughs> she, that's, she's a tough cookie, man. That's a hard game right there. That's going to take some time.
0: All right. Second question. Final question for you, Spencer, Euron, Joel, and Bead. the Process Leech. Why not try to capture more Sand Snakes? If your goal is you're taking, you know, Alaria and the Sand Snakes to Cersei as a gift, you had two other, you had the, the two other Sand Snakes that
1: you could have not killed, you could have injured, and you could have had all three of them there. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's two reasons for this. Uh, One practical for Euron's thought process and another show production one. Practical for Euron, they were actively trying to kill him. He was in the middle of a battle, his blood was up, he got a little stabby. These things, well, stabby and chokey, I think he hung one with her own whip. So, you know, at the time, maybe logically he would have thought, hey, maybe I should just wing these guys, take them prisoner, they're useful as little tokens down the way. But whether he practically or emotionally could have done that at the time, whatever. Uh, For show production reasons, I think the show rightfully believed, the showrunners rightfully believed that the audience really wanted some Sand Snakes dead in that episode. And so they gave the audience what they wanted. Just like King's Landing fans, we love bread and circuses, and our circuses are full of blood. I was pretty fired up for the Sand
0: Snakes death. It was like, so the deaths that I got excited about, right? Number one, Ramsey Bolton. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bullet. bullet. Number two um, is Walter Frey. I, he needed to get got. He finally got got. That was great. And I think right under
1: that is the Sand Snakes. I can't think of anybody else that's more excited to see exit stage left. Which is going to raise an important question, particularly after a Cersei scene that's coming up, of whether we feel what is happening to them is deserved, justifiable, or excusable. But we'll get to that once we see Cersei utterly destroy someone as a person.
0: Yeah, so Euron arrives in the, in the throne room. He gives Alaria and Tane to Cersei. And it, 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 so Alaria sits down in front of the throne and she spits at Cersei. Mm-hmm. But the actress who's playing Alaria. Really got to work on her spit game. That yeah. was it. That was an atrocious spit. I mean, if you're you're spitting at someone, it needs to have some velocity.
1: It, there was you need to need. You try to land it at her feet. Okay, way too much lead up for nowhere near enough payoff. I mean, she's had at least the entire walk up here to practice, and it's just not showing.
0: Well, and then you're on a he again. Makes the point. I did this for a reason. I I want to marry you, Cersei. Cersei says you will have what your heart desires. When the war is won. And Euron, for the moment, accepts this. Everybody cheers. Uh, Cersei makes the point of, with Euron Greyjoy leading our, uh, our naval forces and with Jamie Lannister leading our, our infantry, uh, I will protect the people of the Seven Kingdoms. Oh, thank you, Cersei. You're going to protect us. <laughs> you, <laughs> you're just like the, the mother we all needed.
1: Sir, there are communists in the streets. We need national unity and defense to protect us against these foreign interlopers.
0: Yeah, I got to tell you, like, when she said this, I was like, man, I would believe Putin over her, right? Like, if Putin was like, I'm trying to take care of you, I'd be like, well, maybe, but yeah. not, not Cersei.
1: Well, I mean, there's a bit of a limited information going on here. This is a pre-internet age. You can't exactly, you know, get copies of the New York Times and listen to the BBC to find out somebody else's view. You're getting straight information only from the source, and that's all you live by. Also, you've demonstrated that she's very, very willing to kill people that defy her. So at least public support is probably wise. Yeah, I just thought the framing was really stupid.
0: Like, did mean, you, you know, people don't believe that. Like, you, this is just this is something you said that just sounded good in your head, but like, uh, it's the, preposterous.
1: The necessary trappings of power. She's living the story. She's fulfilling the role just in the same way that Danny is. Just yeah. Very differently,
0: then we, also. Then we cut to Euron when everybody's cheering. He comes up to Jamie. He asks for sex advice from Cersei. Oh, uh, <laughs> Jamie, the, the actor here, shoots him a pretty good look. It's sort of like really enraged, angry, but like having to hold it all in. Oh, yeah. Look. It, then yeah. we go to Cersei, and she mm-hmm. is in the dungeons mm-hmm. with Laria and Tyene. Oh, this is a special, special scene. Yeah, this one's tough. So, right away, you know, you killed Cersei's daughter. She's got the mountain. She's queen, and she's got you in a dungeon. Not a good spot to be in. I got us I know it's a hot take. Not a real good spot for Alaria right here.
1: Not in my top five. No. Cersei has
0: got Alaria chained up on one side of a cell, Tyene chained up on the other side, and she just starts a talking, doing oh. a Lena Headley monologue. Uh, real throwback. To like
1: season one and two, Cersei. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a wonderful line of when she looks at Alaria right in the eye and says, why did you do that? And of course, Lena Headley is just this amazing actress, so every line that she's in is beautiful and perfect. But this one in particular, it's just so pained. There's like actual confusion in her despair when she says that, where she couldn't even imagine a scenario where she would have done the same to another person. It's really interesting to see in these moments of when Cersei feels like she has somebody completely at her power, when she's just utter lord of their fate, that she really drops a lot of her masks and she's remarkably honest. And we get to see how utterly brutal and sadistic honest Cersei truly is. Yeah, it's true. I
0: mean, you're you're getting you're getting prime Cersei here, 100% USDA Cersei. Uh, she starts to talk about like, well, look, obviously I'm going to kill your daughter. I mean, this, this is sort of an unspoken thing
1: here. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, I mean, you're not getting out of here. You do this, um, this happens. Come on, everyone was on the same page here.
0: Yeah, you're a, you're a minus 15,000 to walk out of that situation. <laughs> and there's another reference that Spencer doesn't understand. Um,
1: I was laughing just to participate. I was happy to be part of the joke for a second. It's a gambling <laughs> reference, really
0: not your corner. Uh. Um, and she says like, you know, I could have had Sir Gregor your daughter's head, like, you know, did, did to your lover. Or she starts going through all these different. And then, but she, she's really taking her time about it. It is, it is a mean, brutal scene. And she ultimately starts talking about how beautiful Tyene is, and she kisses her. And when she <laughs> kisses her, Cersei backs up, and Tyene looks at her mom, and just goes.
1: Um, like, she, they they know what that oh, means. Oh, yeah. The look in Alaria's eyes of where she is a, absolutely 100% certain what just happened, and she's dying before our eyes when it does.
0: And weirdly enough, that's not the most brutal part of the episode. Or not the scene, because. Even close. Yeah. Then she explains what's going to happen next. <sighs> and that's pretty grim. And she said, We're going to leave. Basically, she says, uh, You know, uh, she asks Kybern, How long does it take for Tang to die? Uh Kybert says, eh, it's hard to say, hours, days, it kind of depends on the subject's constitution. And she, Cersei, turns to Alaria and says, you're going to watch your daughter die here. Yep, if you yep. don't eat, we're going to shove food down your throat. You're going to watch her die and you're going to watch her rot.
1: <sighs> That's just almost like straight Greek, Greek mythology punishment there. Where that is it's, all—that's it's, yeah. all the hubris of your life coming back to bite you in one moment.
0: Yeah, it's pretty brutal, and and I mean, I—it's clear that that's really what's going to happen. So I—I I, I watched this and I was like, I hope this is the end of this scene that we get, right? I hope we don't address this again in the future. I really don't need to see the scene where <laughs> Laurie is down there with a rotting child, but.
1: They they saved us from that. We didn't have to see that. Oh, I'm betting uh, when, I, I'm betting money that if ever Cersei falls, we're going to get to see it again. Yeah. So brace yourself for that. What what did you think of uh, Cersei saying that she spends every night awake imagining ways of killing her enemies? Didn't that give you like a really, pretty intense Arya vibe?
0: No, I didn't believe it because the very next scene, she goes up first. So I'm going to transition to the next scene and I'll tell you why I don't believe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I, to point out, she did take the anecdote or whatever to the poison, but she seems to get really, uh, again, I don't work blue, fired up during this scene because she immediately storms upstairs. Uh, she gets with Jamie. um, they, they have intimate relations. Mm-hmm. And it, we cut to the next morning and Cersei's sleeping. <laughs> what? Mm-hmm. You just told me that you don't you can't sleep at night and not a minute later on screen, Jamie's waking up before you you're sleeping
1: like a baby. Hey, I man, we saw with Arya that the little bits of peace that she gets are when she gets to cross a name off her list. Cersei just crossed a big ass name off her list right now. That's a moment of celebration. That's a moment of pure sadistic horniness, apparently.
0: Yeah, apparently. But I also want to, I want to question like the poison anecdote situation yeah. because she takes the anecdote and then goes immediately and kisses
1: Jing. So I'm like, I don't know. Well, a key question. Do you think she actually poisoned her or is she just going to keep on psychologically torturing her this way? I think she did.
0: I, I, I mean, it, it could go either way. I, I don't think it really matters for the show's narrative, no. but I, I, I think she did. I, I
1: mean, I, I, Honestly, as much as I think it's possible that we'll see, their body, see her cradling the rotting corpse of her daughter, I think this is effectively the show riding out the Sand Snakes in possibly the most brutal way they've ever written out a character.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the folks from, from Dorne have had it pretty rough, right? Oh, they deserve um, all of I mean, it. Yeah, you do hate the Dornish. All right, so then we cut to the next morning... Uh, some you know, Cersei's sleeping like a baby, somebody's at the door, Jamie does the you know, normal thing that you do if you are having uh, sex with your sister and you say, Well, people aren't gonna want to see this, and she goes, I'm the queen of the seven kingdoms, I'll do whatever I please. She opens the door, the handmaid clearly sees Jamie there. She clearly can't do anything about it. She doesn't make a she doesn't tip her hand either way how she feels about it. And Cersei says, We're gonna need some fresh sheets.
1: Yeah, and if we wanna talk about power plays this episode, this has to be top three. This is, I'm so utterly in command of this situation that I can brag about fucking my brother and no one can do anything. This is Cersei glorying in all of her power in this world. Work, work in blue.
0: Work in blue, Spencer. I gotta What's make up name? for every
1: time you're not.
0: All right, and then we cut to uh, Cersei gets dressed and she is with Tycho Nestoris. I think I have that name right. Well done, uh, sir. Yeah, that's right. Of the Iron Bank, and he is there um, to talk about the Lannister debts. And it's funny because he keeps he keeps saying to people from Westeros, "We don't make bets, we make investments." Uh-huh. And it's like, and they keep rightfully calling him out for the hypocrisy of that statement. Like, no, you are making a bet. And I'll tell you this: for a non-betting man, he sure is trying to hedge here. I've seen this move. Okay, I've I've had a, a basketball team. That has been down 3-0 going into a road game, game four, and they lose their star player. And I've i laid money on the other guys. That's when you swing. You do what's called a hedge, Spencer. So you put a bunch of money on the other side of the bet. That way, no matter how it turns out, you're even. Well, who? You're fine.
1: Who's his? Who is he? Uh, I mean, if Cersei is his is his hedge, who who is his original bet? We know he put money on Stannis, but he can't believe that's still a possible payout.
0: Oh, no, I think effectively calling in the debt is the hedge. Oh,
1: okay. So, so he,
0: yeah, he doesn't have a lot of faith she's going to be around that much longer. Oh,
1: I'll be that. All, all a second. Stop. Barking dog. I think we can leave it in. Let's leave it in. Uh, you want to leave in the barking dog? <laughs> okay, this is all going in. in. This is final cut right here. We have a dog barking and clawing okay. at the door. Uh, but, you know... Yeah, I mean, I I have to say that, I mean, he is putting a bit of pressure on Cersei here. He's emphasizing the importance of covering their debt. There's a massive amount of implied and literal threat here. Does he reasonably believe this is a bet that he'll recover on? I mean, it doesn't cost him anything to give her a little bit more time.
0: Yeah, I mean, my guess here is he didn't think he was going to get it all, but he thought he could get something from her right a hold off and that that's more than he would have gotten if he just lets her die on the vine i
1: mean cersei does bring up a really good point though and i think this is an excellent point to bring up as part of continually what she offers that danny doesn't is that revolutionaries are not ones that are likely to pay their debts those who are directly revolting against the status quo aren't likely to actively support institutions that have directly favored and furthered the status quo so, in some ways, Cersei would be a much bigger win for them, assuming she's actually willing to pay. Yeah, and also,
0: I just don't see Danny as the type of ruler that's going to incur the levels of debt that the Lannisters are willing to do or that Robert did. I mean, Danny's a much more, I would say, fiscally prudent ruler.
1: Possibly, though, she cares for a lot more people than the average ruler does. <laughs> I mean, she, she's going to set up a welfare system that the world of Westeros has not yet seen.
0: Yeah, and she can get away with those Bernie Sanders-like tax rates, though, because she's got the dragons, right?
1: (laughs) Are you suggesting that if Bernie Sanders brought nukes with him wherever he went to get his point across, that he would be much more successful politically? Uh, I can say that he could get away with a higher tax rate, yes. (laughs) Except my tax rate, or maybe these go off? Maybe they don't. Let's see what happens.
0: Yeah, I think she would do pretty well collecting taxes. Uh, But anyway, Cersei basically promises to rebate the debt in full if the, if Tycho will stay there for, uh, I guess, a fortnight as her honored guest. Spencer, did you know what
1: Cersei was planning here? Or did you have an idea
0: of how she's going to get the money?
1: Honestly, first I watched this episode, it legitimately caught me a bit off guard. I wasn't expecting the show to bit of, do a bit of a change-up of where Cersei legitimately is winning this game of chess against Tyrion. I mean, it looks more and more like that Tyrion is a pretty shit wartime consigliere in a way that Cersei definitely is not. Yeah, you know, they had to do
0: it because, I I mean, at the end of uh, season six, I was like, okay, so the first episode is Cersei losing, right? Because she's just got – she's going to be overwhelmed. So they had to have a few episodes where she does something to get herself back in the game, and I think this is what it is. But anyway, she says uh, she's going to pay him back. And we cut to John, he's in Dragonstone. He is in full John sulking mode. Oh, yeah. Eleven out of ten here. Real hard sulking from Kit Harrington.
1: And of course, Tyrion, being our most audience connected character that we have, just decides to go straight meta and call him out on it. That well, what's what's the exact line that you look a lot better brooding than I do? You make me feel like I fail at I fail at brooding over failing. I would nominate that for a great line, just because it actually made me laugh out loud. Yeah, I agree that 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 deserves to be in discussion for a lot of the
0: episode. Uh, and, you know, basically Tyrion makes the point to Jon, look, what you're asking is unreasonable. You don't know. She doesn't know you. And you are asking her to, you know... Uh, put on pause a war that she has waited her entire life to fight and go up North to fight an army that she has no proof exists. It's an unreasonable thing to ask John. Do you have something reasonable to ask John looks like he's the kid that like just didn't read the book and didn't do the book report. <laughs> and he's in class. Cause he's just uh, what yeah. reasonable. No, I don't. I mean, we have to go fight the dead and Syrian has to lead him there and basically says, how about the dragon glass? You can mine the dragon glass. Yeah. Maybe she can offer that. And John's like, okay, great. Sounds good. Anything you, you want to talk about with this scene?
1: I mean, I just adore how necessary Tyrion and Davos are to their rulers succeeding. That they both have a very different style, but the two of them are just so essential to get John and Danny from just not either utterly failing in their goals or actively killing each other.
0: Yeah. Well, then we cut to Tyrion. He's back uh, in Dragonstone with Danny in the map room, and he's counseling Danny to let John mine the Dragonglass. Danny's like, okay, fine. And she doesn't really seem to uh, have an opinion either way here, but she does again ask about, did you hear what Ser said? He said he yeah. took a knife through the heart for his people. Mm-hmm. Tyrion, I don't think has a good answer here for her, so he kind of diverts the question and says, hey, "Allow the North their flights of fancy. It's dreary up there." Basically,
1: something like that. Yeah. I
0: think this is his way of saying, "I don't, I don't have an answer here for you, Danny, but I
1: don't really want to get into it." Yeah, it's a real brush off of an, of an answer in response to the question.
0: Right. Uh, so then Danny goes outside. Oh, uh, one thing what? I'd like to point out here is
1: that you did you catch that Danny called John the king in the north to did, Tyrion? You know, I didn't. I'll have to go back and check that. that. That's an interesting private slip on her part. Exactly. She should not be referring to him that way, but
0: she did say to uh, Spencer, or yes, yeah, to Spencer, <laughs> she actually said to, to, to Tyrion, uh, that he was the king in the North. She referred to him that way. I thought it was really interesting because she certainly sh- wouldn't and shouldn't be saying that to anyone uh, outside of that room.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I it could be an early perspective on the fact that, that she's actually developing a certain degree of respect for him. Um, an early bit of building their relationship over the course of the season. Um, two little quick things from me. Uh, this, is not the, this is one of several times that we have a character talk about, I mean, let's see here, Tyrion says... Children are not their fathers, luckily for us all. This has been a real persistent theme throughout this episode and throughout the entire season of children charting their own course, of getting out of their father's legacy and shadow. Um, they are definitely working hard to emphasize it. Um, and another... And I think, I think Danny has mentioned that at some other time with Tyrion as well. I don't know the exact
0: episode, but I think this, this similar theme discussion has come up about, you know, we're, doing, we're going to do better than our fathers did.
1: Yeah. Uh, and also, just a quote nominee of uh, that uh, Tyrion says something that's witty, and Danny calls him out and says, "Are you trying to present your own statements as ancient wisdom?" Uh, to which Tyrion know, kind of waffles so and says, nice. "Yeah, I, I love that line. I love it." Tyrion waffles and says, "I would never do that to you." <laughs> I and, love
0: this move here from Danny. Danny has been around Tyrion long enough that she's now starting to catch on to what he does. And by the way, Spencer, I would like to point out, I think you have done this to me before. I think you've been like, I think it was Abraham
1: Lincoln or something, And I couldn't call you out on it. Uh, I know this. Th- this is easily 90% of our conversations with each other. I at least make up some little conish line that you just go along with because you don't know better. That I have been passing off my own little made-up shit as ancient wisdom for just pretty much our entire relationship.
0: Lie. It's all built on a foundation of lies. Hello, everybody. This is going to be part two of episode three. I um, am a predictive master. Obviously, at the beginning of this episode, I told everybody that it was no longer raining in North Carolina. All clear. Everything's good. Well, promptly, a storm rolled in uh, while we were recording and knocked out my internet. So this is a day later. I've got internet back again. I've got lights again. And we're going to pick back up where we left off. Spencer, how are you doing
1: today? I'm fine, other than the lesson in hubris that you gave us both yesterday. You literally brought down the wrath of the gods upon us with your questioning of their authority and scope of power. So,
0: it really is kind of funny, though, because I'm like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a North Carolina champion. I'm like, man, North Carolina is so great now. Everything's good. And we're, we're talking, and I'm looking outside, and it's like darker than it should be, and I'm hearing <laughs> thunder.
1: <laughs> the roof is shaking. Hail is coming down. Cows are flying past. Normal conditions, really. North Carolina, Oklahoma, they're the same state.
0: Yeah, all I've had, I can do California by just saying I'm taking a trip to L.A., <laughs> and then there's, you're, you're, there's going to be an earthquake and like half of it will break off in the sea just because I said that alright let's get back into it
1: alright uh, you can you can I'm, I'm also going to point out that you apparently brought pestilence down in my house and plague and that I got a bad cold last night so can I blame that on you too and you're flirting with the gods of 30.
0: Yeah, that's what I do with my friends. So I'm a full service friend, my friend.
1: I understand. Go on. Where are we starting? I don't even right. remember.
0: Well, we're picking back up. So I, I, we just ended with um, Danny talking to Tyrion in the map room. And I made the really, really good point that you didn't know. So, point one for Terry, uh, that Danny called him King of the North when talking to Tyrion. Well, that conversation ends. And then Danny walks outside where John is. Uh, John still has, uh, I, I think, like. A hoodie, a jacket, a blanket, a parka, yeah, and and a, and a comforter on, because he he is really wrapped up. Uh, and Danny's not, so you have to question like, how hot is John under all that crap? But anyway, oh, yeah. Danny comes out. And she meets with John, and Spencer, tell me uh, if I'm making this up, but I felt like her tone, just in how, like, the actual tone of her voice, not what she was saying, was different when she walked out there.
1: Distinctly, distinctly. She. This was a tone of Danny actually trying to establish a connection with another person, of where this, she lost a lot of the element of imperiousness. She seemed legitimately curious to get to know him, which is a decided change of pace for what she's put forward previously. I I'm telling you,
0: I think it's the he took a knife through his heart the heart for his people. I really think that got it.
1: Maybe so, maybe so. I also agree with your interpretation of John. I mean, there are those who dress for, you know, the weather and the conditions they were in, and there are those who just dress to represent themselves. John changes for nobody even if it's a hundred degrees outside. He's always wearing thirty layers. It's funny,
0: he's like the inverse. Of Stannis, you know, when Stannis uh, broke Mance Raiders' uh, army mm-hmm. north of the wall. And the first thing that Mance says to him is, You're not dressed for this weather, which at the time seems silly, but ultimately that is what did it in Stannis, right? But John is the <laughs> exact opposite. Like, he's not dressed for this weather. He's overdressed. Oh, yes. Way.
1: Consistently and always.
0: <laughs> yeah. So Danny comes out, she makes small talk with John, and she tells him that he can mine the dragon glass and i think more importantly she offers men and tools to actually help forge them into weapons i think john and his six people there he, he wasn't gonna bring back enough dragon glass to affect anything so the real clutch part here is that she's offering up her troops john seems uh, a little surprised by that and and i think appreciative but then he, he takes it a step too far at the end of the scene and he says so that means you believe me right you believe me that there's you know the night king and the army of the dead and and she just says you know you better get to work
1: yeah and There's a quote I'll put forward there, too, uh, for later consideration, of where at one point in this, Danny just kind of quips, you know, we all enjoy what we're good at. And John does his usual brooding and looks away and says, I don't. Which, again, the, the embodiment of how different the two of them are as rulers and what has brought them to this point. Is it acclamation of your people or is it your own sense of destiny?
0: Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out because that I didn't take that as normal John brooding. I, I thought that cut a little deep. It did. Because really what we've seen is that John, one of the things he's best at is garnering the affection of the people around him and the trust of people around him. And he's the damn good fighter. And he, I don't think he wants to fight anymore. And after he came back, after Melisandre resurrected, it was clear he didn't want to fight. Sansa really had to push him to to get him to, to engage in the Battle of the Bastards. And then we'll get to that episode i'm sure during a later review but i felt like he had a death wish during the entire battle i didn't think he wanted to be there yeah um he certainly wasn't engaging in any sort of self preservation so this is just a continuation of that where john just is tired of fighting
1: i mean he has literally died once for his people he is in some ways a resurrected corpse in the same way that beric denarian is this is a man who has seen the other side and the blackness that is there, apparently. Um, he is aged and old and weathered in a way that Danny can't even really come to. You still there? Yeah. I am okay. Yeah, the, the storms haven't taken
0: me out this evening. Um...
1: <laughs> I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting <laughs> All for right. it.
0: then We're going to go ahead.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I also agree with you that a lot of John's brooding, I think is much more of a defense mechanism that uh, he's kind of keeping it up as a barrier to those around and maybe yes. out of, you know, any number of reasons. This was, I think him, revealing a bit of his own pain and difficulties in a way he hasn't done very often. Yeah. And it's clearly writing that is, is, is
0: gearing the audience toward a relationship between these two, right? Like they're connecting John is, you know, he's, he's exposing something about himself. He's, he's being vulnerable and Danny's eating it up. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, it Again, I said this in the previous episode, it's a little hand-handed, but they're they're taking us
1: there. And once we get to a few more episodes and a few more scenes that we can look through, we should really discuss whether we feel it's forced or not. But I just don't think we've got enough of a frame of reference before us to comment on it.
0: Yeah, I didn't like it. Enough. When I was watching the episode the first time, I was like, oh yeah, all right, well, they're doing this. Okay, uh, move on. We're in Winterfell, and Sansa is with Littlefinger, yon command, Horse, Master Walton. Mm-hmm. and she is preparing Winterfell to be an emergency shelter. Uh, I think the thought here from Sansa is, hey, look, when uh, things go sideways on us and the Night King's here, everybody's going to come to Winterfell uh, because we have you know, the biggest, strongest, most fortified castle, and they're not going to think to bring their grain, so tell them to bring their grain now. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because this is a good move to do when you are like the lord of a place right Mm -hmm. but if you're just like the governor you can't just tell people give me your food because you might want it later when you're at my house (laughs) like (laughs) and it was funny because she said it and you know i I live here uh in a democracy so i'm like oh that's a that's a pretty harsh move and then Jan royce is like "Ah, good move my lady very smart very smart
1: (laughs) the only people who get a voice at this table are the ones that are standing next door peasants do not count in the society concern yourself for your army and that's about all you really need (laughs) to
0: Listen, I don't care what your politics is. Neither Barack Obama nor Donald Trump is getting my top ramen. All right? It is staying in my closet.
1: You say that now, but when the 101st Airborne is knocking at your door asking for a few of the boxes, are you really going to say no?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, if they show up, they can have it. All right. So Santa, she's there with the, with her crew. Um, and she's walking around, and she's really embraced this. I mean, this scene shows you that Sansa wanted to rule, and I uh, think she would probably be good at it. I am no means a Sansa supporter. I, uh, I venture on Sansa hater, but I do think she's doing a pretty good job here. Uh, she even points out that when they're they're forging some breastplates uh, for armor, that they're not uh, wrapping them in leather, which they should be doing because it's going to get really, really cold if it's not already really, really cold. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a it, just a little moment to show Sansa's got this. She's doing a pretty good job here. Yeah, Spencer, what do you think?
1: I, mean, I think it's clearly the point of the scene. I think in some ways it may have gone a little bit too far because the things she's recommending should be things that they've already been doing for, you know, years. Winterfell has massive grain stores. It has, hell, it has hydroponics to a certain degree. It doesn't have like greenhouses inside so they can continue to grow throughout the winter. This has always been intended as a holdfast. This has always been intended as a place that throughout the north people can come during the winter. So the fact that apparently it hasn't been doing this and no one's been thinking to do it, it's a little bit concerning and depressing, but Sansa is apparently taking charge in a way that nobody else is and making the necessary decisions. So yeah, it's an important scene to show that how she's coming into her own, and how she's n- no longer content to be in somebody else's shadow as somebody else's queen. She's actually commanding the field.
0: Yeah. Hot take here, Spencer, but I think there might've been a little bit of employee turnover in Winterfell. <laughs> I, yes, I'm, I'm Pe- not quite sure the same people that were there with Edard Stark forging the, uh, the 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 breastplates with the with the boiled leather are necessarily still there. So true,
1: true. <laughs> I think true. that but th- might be the point there. During the employee turnover, did the ex-employees leave with several years worth of supplies? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't think there were exit interviews. Ah, uh, anyway, since Dennis is talking to Littlefinger in a scene that I'd really really hated Littlefinger's trying to like counsel her in some way he's he's doing that crazy accent don't fight in the north don't fight in the south don't fight in the east or west fight everywhere (laughs) all the time in your mind and i know that's a bad impression but it's a bad impression of a bad impression yeah yeah of a bad accent like it's awful but anyway point is he's trying to tell sansa hey look don't ever concentrate on one enemy at a time concentrate on all of them and it's interesting because uh, it, it's clearly what Littlefinger does mm-hmm. And I would argue that his inability To focus on one enemy at a time um, or, or one threat at a time May be his undoing So uh, a little bit of uh, I think it's kind of appropriate That he was giving this type of advice Considering how he ultimately meets his end Spencer, what do you think?
1: But I, I think it also factors into What he's told us previously About what his strategy is Is that chaos is a ladder His constant strategy throughout everything that he's done seems to be is to stir the hive and then make the most uh, beneficial move. He seems to be almost responding to events based on his command to the playing board. Um, I feel like this scene is not only him providing advice to Sansa, though. I feel like in some ways it's advertising his own skills and maybe even providing a degree of intimidation where he's telling her, I'm doing this at all times. I'm aware of everything that is happening. Consider both how valuable I can be and how much of a threat I could be.
0: Yeah, it's funny because his sort of chaos is a ladder thing mm-hmm. is running up against the apocalypse. And it's kind of like when somebody's like, you know, all press is good press. And mm-hmm. then they shoot 50 people in the head. And then you're like, well, I'm not sure that's going to be good press, right? <laughs> but the chaos can be beneficial. I'm not quite sure the Night King's army is is the, quite the chaos that you're going to want to grow from.
1: And We've talked about this before that, you know, Varys and Littlefinger are two of the most experienced, capable power players in this entire series. But they've been kind of diluted to almost nothing over the course of this season, which I think is both a mix of the writers not having a clear plan for what they want to do with them, but also to give them some credit, it's due to these not being historically uh, events that they can base decisions on. These not being the expected way things would proceed. This is a truly novel uh, world that they're operating in and novel events they're having to respond to. So they're, usual means of manipulating people their usual means of responding to events based on their experience just doesn't apply as well it's
0: a whole new world little finger it's a whole new world okay well then sansa that conversation gets broken up sansa's called to the gates where we see um bran mm-hmm. is waiting and he gives her a look um you know <sighs> It's a look that, like, you would expect someone who's on, like, a lot of drugs oh, to give because yeah. it looks like he's just looking right through her. It,
1: it is stu- uh, studiously blank. There's so little – there's either so little or way too much behind it. And then he just drops,
0: hello, Sansa. hmm And she gives him a big hug. Um, she still thinks he's, like, a normal person, like he would like a hug, but it's very clear he doesn't care about the hug. Uh, And then Sansa and Bran. I guess uh, what I take from this is that Bran immediately says, "Take me to the weirwood," which makes sense. Uh, This is Whispernet. That's where he wants to be.
1: And then they go out there. Go ahead. and, And in as little a time as possible, Bran wants to clarify to Sansa that he is no longer a normal person capable of normal conversation. Yeah, he does
0: that here, and it starts with Sansa, who, <laughs> low-key, Spencer, you know why Sansa said this, but she said, you're Lord of Winterfell now. Yeah, yeah. I know why you said that. You didn't say that because, you know, you were like, hey, Bran, I'm happy you're here. It's like a, you're not going to take this thing away from me, are you? Like, yeah. <laughs> she's testing him out. <laughs> <laughs> she knows her priorities here. Yeah, so she she mentions that. He, ex- he explains that he, he can't be the Lord of Winterfell, and... Uh, because he's the three-eyed raven, and Sansa, a funny line from her, she goes, "I don't know what that means." <laughs> Which is really good writing. Yeah, like I know it's basic, but it's like that's what you would say. You go, "I don't know what you just said."
1: Yeah, and Bran apparently sucks at the explanation game. Because at least twice in this in this little short conversation, he basically just says, eh, "It's hard to explain." It's like, yeah, I is mean, it he, really? He doesn't,
0: yeah, he doesn't have the reference point. But what he really wants to say is, "I'm a search engine." Like, that's what he is. (laughs) I am Google in your world. Yeah, that's what he is, for real. Yeah. He is. And then he explains that, you know, who taught him is the Three-Eyed Raven, which is actually really funny, because then Sansa's like, I thought you were the Three-Eyed Raven. And he's like, I told you it was hard to explain. (laughs) And I'm going to do a deep cut um, comparison here, Spencer. You're not going to get it. Probably like eight of our nine listeners aren't going to get it, but I'm doing it anyway. All right. So. Bring it on. Becoming the three eyed Raven in Game of Thrones is like becoming command in the TV show Scandal. And anybody who's watched Scandal knows what I'm talking about. Basically, you become command and you are your command. You learn everything, you're control of everything. And you have to hand that off in a very careful way to the next person. That's what the Three Eyed Raven is. That's what the training north of the wall was. Was the Three Eyed Raven's attempt to get Bran ready. And Bran screwed up with young Hodor and all of that, so he didn't get. He had the big data dump, which I think kind of messed with him. That I'm not sure that the um, that Blood Raven really wanted to do. But not, regardless, he he's been handed this position that's like, like it's like command. It's like you you, you are now in charge. You are the Three-Eyed Raven, and he can't possibly explain that
1: to Sansa. So are you suggesting this is like Lewis Lowry in The Giver, of where The Giver is necessarily training up his next replacement with all the knowledge of the world, with all the prior all prior and past events, so as to guide people in the present?
0: Are we just punching comparisons back and forth that neither one of us are going to understand? This was
1: my objective, yes. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm gonna to have to assume that that's the case. But yeah, that's uh, that's what Bran is now. He's got the Sassoon position. It's sort of bigger uh, than any of the sort of man-made positions could be. He is the Google of Westeros, and he very, very creepily tells Sansa that she was beautiful that night, um, and Sansa doesn't know what he's talking about. But then when he references that she was wearing a white dress, she knows that he was there the night. That, or at least he was watching the night that she got married to Ramsey Bolton. And it's a weird thing to bring up, and it's weird to call her beautiful in that moment, because I can tell you her memory probably isn't that she was beautiful yeah, on that night. Yeah,
1: Brant, of the various moments that you want to use to prove that you now have godlike powers, admittedly, that one's powerful. That will fully convince her that you have gone beyond human. But I wouldn't start with it. It seems like there's other less... Fundamentally destructive to her psychology, ways that you could have proven your point. Not- and,
0: and I, and it's weird because he—he's not a cruel cool person. He's not somebody who—who's out to like show how strong he is. So I think it was just. He was just being clumsy, and I think what we're we're meant to – it's meant to suggest is that after this data dump, after a brand has become the three-eyed raven, he's not really – to your point when we started this conversation, he's not really capable of interacting on an emotional level like a normal human anymore.
1: No, I fully agree. I don't think it's in any way malevolent. I think it is – he has become so much wrapped in events that are happening several thousand years in the past or thousands of miles away that he can't really focus on any individual person in any individual moment to establish a human connection. I wonder, and I'm curious if your opinion, that Bran last season wasn't like this, that he still was very much human, was still very much able to interact and communicate with Mira as part of the regular um, going about their day. How do you feel about how far he has now gone into being an utterly impersonal entity rather than a person?
0: I thought it was the data dump that did it. I mean, that was the clear moment when he changed. Um, he went into what looked like a kind of seizure state, and he stayed in it for a long time as Mira was trying to get him
1: away from the threat, um, north of the wall. And I think that that data dump changed him fundamentally. But Even the Three-Eyed Crow wasn't like this. He was capable of emotion. He was capable of passion. He even cried right before he was killed. Um, I Perhaps brands just it's not. It's all very new. new. It's all very new. Perhaps. He, perhaps. Like, brands filling this out, but he,
0: uh, he clearly his cognition has changed. Possibly so. Let's go on, though. All right. Then we cut to Old Town, and Jorah is being ex, um, examined by, and uh, I've been admonished for this. I wasn't using the archmaster's name. I was just calling him archmaster. He's archmaster Ebros. Mm-hmm. And uh, he is examining Jorah. With what looks like a meat thermometer. Yes. I don't know what the thing is. He's poking him with. It's, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. He doesn't seem to really be examining it in any way. No, just very casual. It actually gets that it, that it gets at really understanding if there's still an infection there or not. It's like he's just like poking, poking. Okay, medium rare. You know what? You're yeah. Good. No. C-
1: clearly, he'd cooked that bear liver you talked about a couple episodes before, and just walked in the room with it. He was. That, that's what he had in hand. Yeah, that's how you diagnose uh, a grayscale,
0: with a, a a Westerosi-sized meat thermometer.
1: And is the implication that this is happening just a few hours after Sam did the treatment? Because didn't they say that they were shipping him out the next morning?
0: Yeah, we had a back and forth on this. You seem to think that it was going to take Sam all night to do this thing. Um, I didn't think that. I, my guess is that he was probably out of that room by 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, and now we're at about 9 or 10 o'clock, and the Archmaester... Uh, Ebros is there and and is looking at Jorah, but I I have no way of knowing that. He could could have been an all-nighter. Who knows?
1: And I'm not a master of coagulation and, you know, the healing of wounds, but it seems like he removed, like, 40% of Jorah's skin, which is now still looking kind of rough and scarred, but otherwise completely healed. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I I think that the, the show... Think
0: that They think they gave you enough detail there, and they're going to move
1: on, right? <sighs> well, I accept that that's what they think. I disagree with their conclusion.
0: Mm. All right, book
1: nerd in the house. All right. There's not need to be a book nerd to... there. This has been something of where they clearly wanted Jor back in the story and ham-handedly forced it through. Now, who, when
0: I call you a book nerd here, I'm saying that you want the level of detail that a book would, the book would give you, whereas the show, they think they've, they've given you enough. They think they've serviced this plot.
1: They've given us Ian Glenn. That's what they know. They don't want le- to lose his sonorous tones from this story. That's their objective rather than rational plot progression.
0: Mm, hot take. He does get last billing. He is the uh he is the, the alpha. So in speaking of alpha, the Archmaster, I I love this character so much yeah. because he is in there. And he's dealing with somebody who is just about to be you know, doomed to die of Grayscale, who has now been cured, and he is so annoyed, <laughs> <He's> so <laughs> mad that this guy has been cured because he knows what happened, he knows
1: Sam snuck in there, and more so he knows that Sam was successful, which yeah. that really it really just pisses him off. Which again surprises me that he does such a cursory examination of it. As, as you said, he does a couple pokes in him and basically says, eh, this plague that could possibly eradicate most of Westeros, clearly gone, I guess I'll just leave now. If he really wanted to bust Sam's balls more, couldn't he have like delayed his conclusion a little bit? No, he was too mad for that. He wasn't playing games.
0: Oh the Archmaster, the Archmaster's an alpha. When he gets mad, you know he's mad. He's he doesn't play games. But anyway, he's he's clearly upset. He walks out and he screams to Sam that they're gonna meet in the evening. Yeah. Um Sam and then he says, Where, you know, Jorah, where are you gonna go? He says, Well, of course I'm going back to Danny. We all knew that. And they kind of end by saying, you know, I hope we meet again. And Sam sticks his hand out. Big moment for Jorah. God knows when the last time he's actually touched a human was. And, 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 that, and then,
1: that legitimately is a very powerful thing. That is a very touching moment of human contact. Yeah, as you said, who knows how long Jorah has been in this state? Months? Maybe a year? The fact that somebody's willing to voluntarily reach out to him is... It's a very powerful moment.
0: You know what it was like? It was like when Magic Johnson returned to the Lakers in <sighs> 1994... And like the first person guarded him. It's like that, that handshake is like the first guy deal up magic Johnson in 1994.
1: Hey, Hey, I got that one. I understood that <laughs> reference. I am so proud of myself right now. That's good.
0: I'm broadening the base. That's called broadening the base. Spencer. Okay. Uh, and then Archmeister, he meets with Sam and he, uh, you know, he basically just says you, you, uh, you treated him, right? And Sam says, yes. He says, who told you not to treat him? He says, that eh, seemed to remember you. And he, he says, look, you know, this is really dangerous. You could have gotten grayscale, You could have not known it. You could have spread it to a lot of people here. You could have devastated the Citadel. All true. And at this point, you think he's going to expel Sam. At least I did. And he says, but you didn't. Mm-hmm. You didn't. You were successful. How'd you do
1: it? And Sam, big boy move here, he goes, well, I read the book and follow the directions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's a remarkably powerful, subtle response on Sam's part. Just like, eh, wasn't that hard, really. <laughs> no man such a and Sam knows just how to
0: needle the Archmaester because there's no other answer that would have pissed off the Archmaster more than that oh it oh, yeah. wasn't well, it wasn't that
1: hard you know book knowledge it's not like I needed years of surgical practice to perform this delicate medical procedure I mean anybody could do it really <laughs> but the Archmaster
0: does give him his due uh, and this is like the first time I've seen the Archmaster actually be nice to Sam he says that man is alive because of you Yeah, you should be proud and I, I didn't, it may not win it but I nominated for best line of the episode because it, it, it's really important for Sam to hear that.
1: It is, and I even like how the Archmaster says it, too, where many Meisters with far more rings than you could not have accomplished what you did. And then that's a hell of an institutional statement of credit. Now, his way of rewarding Sam is debatable at best.
0: Yeah, which is reward is he gets to transpose um, some old scrolls that are deteriorating um, and it basically, he says, well, you thought you were going to get a reward? Like, your reward is I didn't kick you out of this place. You need to transpose these things. And then he ends with, like, uh, be careful, the paper mites. They bite human flesh, too. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> the Archmaster is going to get his due from this in the end. Now, we ultimately, you and I, have perspective to know what is in this collection. Do you think the Archmaster has even the slightest clue? Is there no, any intent behind not. this? No, zero. He does not
0: know. He doesn't really care, because the... The, we can get to it, but like, you know, the reveal of uh, John, all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't care about that. He, he's the Archmaster. He doesn't care who's the king or who's the what. He doesn't even care that there's potentially an army of the dead marching down. So I don't I don't think the Archmaster would give a shit about this. I would like to nominate the Archmaster as a top fictional character I
1: wish I could drink with. <laughs> oh, yeah. He'd be a good drinking buddy. It, it, that would be a Man. very pleasant way to spend an evening. What a crotchety drunk he would be. Uh, oh That would be amazing. I, mean, I would feel bad for the waitstaff. The bartender would be being abused nonstop over the course of that evening.
0: All right, so then we leave the we leave old Town. We're back in Dragonstone, and Danny's in the map room with Tyrion, Varys, and Ascendy. and they are discussing the Unsullied attack on Casterly Rock. This is sort of an interesting scene here. It's a it's a play with what is reality, what is fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and by by fantasy, I don't mean the genre. I mean like something that's actually not occurring. Um, and well, yeah, fantasy doesn't really occur but in the story. It's not actually. We're occurring.
1: with you. We're with
0: you. Um, yeah. Uh, and Tyrion starts a monologue on what they'll face when they get there. He basically says, Hey, look, Casterly Rock is the the same place that my father left it. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's well fortified. The troops are well provisioned. They're well trained and the Unsullied are outnumbered and they're going to go, they're going to try to breach the walls. And you see like a scene of Grey Worm dying. It looked like, uh, and, and you're kind of like, what the heck just happened there? But he goes, you know, he backs out of that. And then he explains, you know, my father built Casterly Rock. He built it up to what it is now, but he didn't build the sewers. Mm -hmm.
1: That was below him, so he gave it to the lowest person he knew, me. Which I've always wondered whether Tyrion was right to feel insulted by that, because, you know, a town's sewers are kind of the most important thing you could possibly build or construct. They're kind of providing for the entire future of the community. But, you know, Tyrion's always willing to see an insult wherever Tywin does anything to him.
0: Yeah, but I I don't imagine that Tywin gave it to him under those pretexts, right? He wasn't like, hey, Tyrion, I need you to do this. This is really, really important. He was probably like, hey, handle
1: the shit the piss, please. Well, I mean, he could have not given him any job at all. The fact that he gave him something that actually involved a certain degree of skill and knowledge to accomplish, yeah, deserves more merit than just simply dismissing it as a way of insulting him. I agree that, you know, he he could have picked a more glamorous one. He could have picked something that was more in the public eye than literally, hey, we need to make sure the poop actually gets, it makes it to the ocean.
0: But okay, okay, Spencer, are you committing right now to quitting your job and joining the public works department at your local municipality? Yes
1: or no? Uh, what are they paying? Oh, a, a minimum
0: wage is not much.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sir, I've got bills. I've got. I've, I've. I've got responsibilities. I've got dependents. You know, if if they can if they can reasonably afford me, I would consider it meaningful work. Uh, yeah, I'm sure he would. Anyway,
0: Tyrion then explains that he was low. Uh, and here's a, a scene that I really, really liked. I noticed it the first time I watched it, but on rewatch, I, I liked it even more. He said, I was low, the company I kept. And mm-hmm. he starts to basically explain, I had prostitutes around. And as he launches into this, if you notice, in the in the background, Missende looks away. Can't yeah. even look at him when he's talking about this. Mm-hmm uh but he explains you know I, I, basically I, I developed the sewers but i gave myself a little treat and you cut back to casterly rock and this is now what has actually happened and it's gray worm and just a few folks taking one ship uh into the a uh, little hole somewhere in the side that goes into the sewer system and they you know I, I, presumably Tyrion gave them instructions But they were able to actually infiltrate Casterly Rock And go and open the front door Letting in all of the Unsullied troops mm-hmm.
1: w- Which The Unsullied
0: it? troops immediately I'm going to go ahead and power through And then we can go back Please. The Unsullied troops uh, immediately uh, you know, engage with the Lannister forces. They seem to be getting the better of the Lannister forces. Grey Worm particularly oh, yeah. is and out of control. Oh yeah. Uh, Grey Worm can fight, man. Grey Worm's, he's low key, like potential
1: MVP candidate. Mm-hmm. I, mean, and, I I would encourage him go, to get it, some, it, some weapon other than a spear at some point, but that's a, you know, we can talk about that.
0: Yeah. Well, he was doing pretty good in combined it, space. He uh, And he, he, he kills a few Lannisters. They go up top and now they've killed everyone. And, Grandma's kind of looking around like, there should be more. Like, there's supposed to be more of these people. This is supposed to be hard. And he ju- he does something that uh, – this shows that, by the way, in his Unsulled training, he really wasn't scared of heights because he just jumps from – standing jump right on the side of the castle, um, which as somebody scared of heights, I was just like, uh, nope. Yeah. Uh, and he looks, and Euron's fleet has arrived, and they are using the patented Euron fireballs, to destroy the fleet that took the Unsullied to Casterly Rock. At this point, uh, Grey Worm jumps down and he, he grabs a dying Lannister
1: skull, soldier and screams, where are they? Where are the rest of the Lannisters? Okay. All right. A lot, lot to cover there, Spencer. What's your thoughts? Well, first thought is I am I really have to give them credit. I really admired how much they've decided to change how they film and depict scenes over the course of the season, how much more willing, they're willing they are to experiment. The showrunners have previously talked about that they weren't comfortable doing visions or prophecies or anything that wasn't in the moment. Now, as you said, they're, they're displaying scenarios that aren't actually occurring. They're displaying proposed hypothetical events and, exp- and counting on the audience to be able to make it through. So I admire their willingness to try new things over the course of the season. I thought this scene was another good example of it.
0: I agree, but I, I actually am sympathetic to the view of, or, or the position that the showrunners had, that Benioff and Weiss had early on, because you can look at the other side of that poll and it's Westworld, and I'm sure we're going to do a Westworld show at some point, but you know, it it plays with what is reality to the point that I think it loses the casual viewer, and you're only left with hardcore viewers. You're only left with people who watch each episode two or three times and comment about it online.
1: It's true. There is a line to walk, but I think that their willingness to try to push us a little bit pays off to a certain degree. It's made for some very interestingly filmed scenes as a result. Yeah, I liked this one. I did like it a lot. Well, when he screams... Where are they? Where are the rest of the Lannisters? What, we get our answer. Well, what, what it cuts to one last ahead. one last point to hit. How do you feel about Euron's fleet being Cersei's constant ace in the hole? Is it reasonable that they basically were able to make it all the way around Westeros to attack the uh, the um, the fleet where they did?
0: Uh, look, if you get into troop movement, ship movement. Jetpacks, you're you're gonna lose this show. I, I I fully admit that it's if you look at the map of Westeros, it's completely unreasonable that they could get the King's Landing all the way over. Um, well, hold on, let's back up. Yep, yeah, back up, Spencer. I, I can defend this. The, the same. troops, the Unsullied
1: troops had to make the same trip. They did, and they left at the exact same time that the Dornish fleet did. So they, yeah. w- they would not have received notice of the Greyjoys. They already would have been committed. And since they're loading troops, they would have been pretty slow moving. Now, I, it would have taken them friggin' months to make it to Castle Blue Rock, but we'll ignore that detail. But I don't think it's unreasonable that the Greyjoy fleet could have seen them and tailed them, uh, based on apparently the fact that uh, Danny's forces don't believe in scouts or outriders to any degree. So I, I don't think it's entirely out, out of bounds to think that the Greyjoys could have did what they did. Damn it, Spencer, that is a good point. You
0: are absolutely right. Look, it does make sense that Euron's fleet could have, I guess, trailed the unsullied to Casterly Rock. Take it back. Take a point off the board for me, scorekeeper.
1: Now, I still think that the use of Euron's fleet is overwhelmingly intended to be a check on Danny, that they presented Danny as being too powerful in the last season, that it was unrealistic that anyone would be able to oppose her. And so they've created this massive, mythical, magical fleet for Euron. And now we're using it in every possible way to check Danny's moves. With Danny's chosen decisions falling perfectly into a position where he could effectively and to a degree reasonably defeat her and weaken her overall forces. So I think it's more plot than practically necessary, but I think it's at least justifiable. Question for you mm-hmm. How many episodes do we get into
0: season eight before Danny just takes Drogon and burns all of that fucking fleet up?
1: Uh, a while. They seem like they're pretty heavily focused on the others, at least for where they're going to end up. And Cersei is going to be then the final villain of the show. I mean, technically, Euron pieced out. You saw the zombie and went, "Okay, can they swim? No, I'm gone. Live on an island. Great place yeah, to be." No, no,
0: that seemed, that seemed like a lot of theater there. It, I don't know if I did. believe he really left.
1: It, he at least presented that possibility. And knowing Danny and John, they're just going to accept that at face value without any questions asked. Um, But I picture them being as more of an in-game villain to settle the Seven Kingdoms rather than the original focus of their operations. Because Cersei's clearly waiting for either the dead to win, in which case everybody loses, whatever, or uh, Danny and John to win but be so heavily weakened that she can then step in and slaughter them wholesale. So Cersei doesn't make her move until after the dead are gone from the equation. And I, I
0: guess my point is that they were able uh, in this episode to talk Danny out of just going and just burning Euron's fleet. Because yeah. if the idea was you're too important, you could get hurt. Well, they lose that argument in episode four, right? And he continues to use Drogon and actually participate in battle through the end of the season. Uh, I just feel like here's what I would want to happen and then we can move on to the rest of the episode. Sure. I just hope that like it's episode two. And Danny just gets like a note. She's in Winterfell, and she just gets a note that like Euron's fleet is like at White Harbor. And mm-hmm. she's just like, I'll be right back. And then just like one afternoon just burns <laughs> it to the ground.
1: <laughs> yeah. She very,
0: is, she, not dramatic at all.
1: Yeah. She just shows back up with a little soot in her hair with everyone confused where she was for the last four hours. <laughs> Asshole to coming to him. Well, all right. Back to the episode. Well, you know the way Danny also fixes this? Get another dragon rider. You're, you're worried about you all, you having to go with your dragons wherever they want to go. Find someone else who can take a dragon. Which, yeah, she's got one. Not, not that she knows it yet. Yeah, she she's she's got herself one. It's a uh, little nephew love.
0: Okay, back to the episode. Um, we. Cut to Drayworm screams, "Where are the rest of the Lannisters?" Mm-hmm. And we cut to the Lannister forces are on the march. Here's a question for you before we get into this scene, which, by the way, might be my one of my favorite scenes of the entire series. Wow. That's right. Wow. Hot taken, not hyperbole. This is for real. Damn. I really, really, really love this scene. But anyway, okay. Here's a question for you. So Tyrion's plan, hashtag plan, was to have the Tyrell forces march on the King's Landing. To have Yara's fleet go down, pick up the Dornish army, come back, and the Tyrell forces and the Dornish army will lay siege to King's Landing. Yeah. So my question for you is, did Lord Tar- was Lord Tarly leading the Tyrell army that was supposed to march on King's Landing, and they just they just turned tail and just flipped, right? Because I guess my question is, here the Lannister forces take uh, Highgarden very quickly. The oh, implication yes. here is that. Elena uh, doesn't have a lot of troops there with her. Yeah. So where are the Tyrell troops that were supposed to go to King's Landing to lay siege on them? Did they join the Lannister forces with Lord Tarly, or are they somewhere out there still?
1: It, it, it's interesting how this show likes to likes to portray how a force is defeated. I mean, for the Dornish, they just very casually mention that, oh, we can't rely on the Dornish anymore, to which my question practically is, why exactly? Yes, their leaders are imprisoned, but presumably their army is still fine and ready to march north. That when they decide that the Lannisters have pulled a fast one on uh, the Queen of Thorns, suddenly she doesn't have an army anymore because she personally has been defeated and tricked. So I think in some ways it's a little bit overly convenient and almost kind of threads into how they ultimately decide they can defeat the others and that you kill one of the others and all of his little zombies then fall apart around him. But if I want to defend it, I think you reasonably can for uh, how apparently easily they're able to march on Highgarden the Reach, almost more than any other part of the Seven Kingdoms, is very futile. And we've seen before that Cersei invited quite a few of the Reach Lords to her. Uh, Jamie said to um, Randall Tarley that the other Reach Lords look to you. They will follow your decision. And we see him marching with apparently a fair amount of his own troops and other Reach troops with the Tyrell army. So, clearly... Him, at least, and some other lords of his sub-lords are actively supporting the Tyrell forces. It's also perfectly possible that the rest of the Reach lords, who've probably been pretty uncertain about supporting the Queen of Thorns, given her support of foreign raiders, may have just chosen to sit this one out. So I don't think he had to have been in command of the forces. I think it's just been reasonably set up that her her part of the Seven Kingdoms is heavily fractured, and her most powerful lord, who everybody else is looking to for guidance, went over to the Lannister forces.
0: Spencer, that was an all-time non-answer.
1: I tried really hard. I tried really, enjoyed, really, I really hard. Really tried really hard. Every
0: single, you're just trying out for press secretary right now. That was an all-time, round-the-bases-it-could-have-been-anything answer. I think that Lord Tarly marched off with the forces, joined Jamie Lannister, and they all turned, which would have been nice if we could have seen some Tyrell um, you know, uh, sigil – uh, shields marching alongside the Lannisters, because then that would have really told the story. It, but anyway, I it, digress.
1: But if that's possible, wouldn't the Queen of Thorns or someone loyal to her have known that Randall Tarly decided to piece off two kings' landing for a few days?
0: No. While he was supposedly uh, well, in
1: command of her army?
0: She may have known that. I don't know. I mean, we, we don't have any, any indication that she doesn't know that. She may have just held face that he would he would stand with House Tyrell. All right, I think we've gone down that rabbit hole enough. Let's go back to actually what happened in the episode.
1: Okay. So Your favorite scene. Um, go on.
0: Yeah, really, really good. So Jamie's marching. He's there with um, uh, Lord Randall Tarley and Rickon. What is it, Dickon? Okay, Dickon. And they are marching with the Lannister soldiers. Mm-hmm. They look uh, very official. Mm-hmm. Um, and we cut to, and yet again, I'm, oh, I'm minus two now in just a couple minutes. Take another point away from Lee. Lady Olena standing. Standing at the balcony at High Garden, she's looking at the Lannister forces marching onto High Garden. She has a pretty grim look on her face. She turns around and she walks back inside. Mm-hmm. Then we cut to Jamie Lannister, and you get a little POV action here. He's just doing the West Wing walk situation, walking very intently. And it's clear from his sort of line of sight that the Lannister forces have taken the castle. They've defeated what was left of the Tyrell army, and he's marching, marching, marching. He gets to the door, he opens it. And, um, in a, in a, a sort of weirdly lit room sits uh, lady Olenna in mm-hmm. the corner and he walks in and this is where it starts to get really interesting. This is where it's sort of one of my favorite scenes because it's clear. I mean, I, I was watching this the first time and it, there was no doubt in my mind that Olena was going to die in that room.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, for a couple of reasons. One is, uh. There's no way he would let her live, uh, and Cersei certainly wouldn't let her live, and I didn't think there was any way that they they would take the actress, Diane Rigg, and actually put her in any sort of situation where she was getting beaten. or I mean, they can't do that.
1: She's an 80-year-old lady,
0: so that was off the table.
1: I, I, I very much agree. I think everyone in that room and in that castle knew that the Queen of Thorns was not going to survive that day. It's just a question. Well either knew she wasn't going to survive that day or that her end fate was going to be death in a painful manner. But seems like Jamie had a much simpler way of resolving the situation. All
0: right. I also want to point out here, and this is, I'm not, this is not a nomination. It is an award. Lady Olenna wins alpha of the episode for this conversation she's about to have with Jamie. Really? Um, be- beating the Archmaester, out. your usual favorite. Yeah, I know. It was a come from behind victory. I mean, Archmaester had it with the meat thermometer, but, I gotta tell you, Lady Olenna just crushes her final moments here in life. She's uh, she asks Jamie if her forces fought well. Jamie says as well as can be expected, boss answer there, and uh, he basically starts to explain. Well, Lady Olenna says, "Well, your your brother thought that you would be defending Casterly Rock." Jamie gets his uh, Taiwan on and says, "Well, it was basically useless. Now I don't really care about it, and they can't hold it anyway. We burn up all their ships. They're gonna have to walk all the way back back across Westeros."
1: Uh, yeah. Go ahead. I, I just, I love the literal uh, chess metaphor that's at play in Cersei and Tyrion's game that they're playing here. We've talked before about the two of them are playing strategic chess for, over the course of this season. Cersei literally traded a castle for a queen. That in, in giving up Casterly Rock, she lost a piece, but to take out the most powerful piece that her opponents had in their possession. Um, it, it's it's it been very interesting to see. Once again, We talked about it last, I think we talked about it previously in this episode, that Tyrion is not proving himself to be a great wartime consigliere, that Jamie just very casually says that, eh, it matters to me quite a bit, which you've said that probably matters to Tyrion too much, but, yeah, casually Rock's not really of strategic value anymore. Did you just say that Highgarden was the the queen piece for Danny? Well, she's the queen of thorns. You know, it's a nice little comparison there. Also, in terms of her Westerosi forces, in terms of the legitimacy by which Tyrion has said that she needs to establish herself and having boots on the ground, actual loyal, loyalties among the populace, the Reach was almost all of her army. The Dornish didn't have much to offer. The Reach has, what, 80,000 troops potentially to bring to bear? now are all gone. Now she is the foreign invader that Cersei's always been framing her as, because that's her only I think you were. I think you were really excited about the Queen metaphor, and it was a little bit of a stretch there, because I would not say... No, <laughs> I, I'm I back... In,
0: her, the Tyrell forces were even remotely the strongest part of her army. It's everything she brought with her.
1: They were the strongest part of her legitimacy. Otherwise, she is truly just a foreign invader at the head of a foreign horde.
0: Yeah, I don't think that having the Tyrell army would have stopped people from saying that about her. But anyway... <laughs> They uh, they start talking, and so they, they, Jamie just explained, I didn't I didn't need, um, we don't need Casterly Rock. And he, then he explains what he did, uh, which is he basically left, split his army, he sp- left some of his army at Casterly Rock. A small part of it took the bulk of it to attack uh, Highgarden. Mm-hmm. And then he explains that he learned that from Robb Stark, shout out, Whispering Wood. Yep. And that's exactly what Rob Stark did to him.
1: In season what was it, two, I think? No, it had to be three. No. Season three. very, very begin uh, very end of season one. Going back that far. Oh. That was when he was oh, taken prisoners.
0: Yeah, we're gonna have to rewatch there because I'm a little I'm a little rusty. But anyway. Happily. Uh he, he shouts out he shouts out uh Rob Stark at Wistering Wood, and then he said Jamie says, There's much to learn in
1: failures. Olena says you must be very smart by now. Very wise. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. It's uh, best put down of the season easily
0: you <laughs> must be very yeah wise okay point for spencer but still that's fucking great oh yeah oh my god i love lady Olenna. and then lady Olenna uh asks how she's gonna die how will he do it with that sword what did joffrey name it <laughs> 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 jamie sheepishly just says widow's whale and I'm gonna work. I'm gonna do Spencer. I'm working blue here. Lady Elena says he really was a cunt. Let me. And what I liked about, of course, of course, she said that. Oh yeah. She just drops truth bombs left and right. But the look on Jamie's face was just like a me, yeah.
1: And it was And it's continuing a run of this episode Of doing kind of like a best of the best Of the most quotable lines from prior seasons Because this is straight Hound talking with Arya Where doesn't she Like three or four years ago she says You know lots of people name their swords To which the Hound responds A lot of cons." Yep yeah. <laughs> Really
0: All, was it,
1: wasn't he? Also, I mean, uh, even, when Tyrion, even when Tyrion's talking about the attack on Castle Rock, he takes time to quote Bronn, and we also saw Bronn again, first time of the season, riding with the Lannister forces. So I, that's true. Braun still castle chasing. Yeah, still castle chasing. You know what I call Bronn?
0: Bronn is the Kevin Durant of Westeros. He go just, go you know, on. Your side, your side loses. You just go to the other side. I'm going to get my castle one way or another. Has he really shifted sides?
1: I mean he's always kind of been in the Lannister camp.
0: I guess. But I mean, you know, they split and then he 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 left Tyrion and went over to Jamie. But yeah, but I guess so. But he he certainly uh stopped ride or dying with Tyrion.
1: True. Kind of Tyrion more wit
0: rogue than the Lannisters did, though. Man, you brawn apologist. you first of all, everybody listening, Spencer told me one time with a straight face that he thought Braun was gonna sit the Iron Throne. At the end of the season, so or at the end of the book. So just keep that in mind when he's talking about Brian. Did I mean it fully seriously? No. Could I justify it? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then uh, Lady Olenna points out that Cersei um, has really taken the situation beyond Jamie's control. Mm-hmm. And Jamie says, yeah, she pretty much has. And, and he's just being honest here with somebody who, you know, will never live to tell the tale of what he said. So he admits she's taken it beyond. Uh, his control and, and Olena here with another great line, potential line of the episode. She says, "You love her, you really love her,
1: you poor fool." Yeah, and even, Jamie doesn't really have a response to that. He just kind of try, tries to end the conversation as fast as possible.
0: Yeah, and he says something like, uh, "No, no
1: uh, there's no
0: benefit in, in discussing it with you." And she basically says, "What better person to discuss it with?" Yeah, you know that you know that I I'm gonna die here, so. You can talk to me about it. Uh, and then she drops that, uh, you know, Cersei's a disease. Oh, that's a great And that she there. she regrets her role in spreading it, which I think is is pretty spot on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Elena can be pretty harsh, but Cersei is rough, man. And, and and she's infected a lot of people and she's caused a lot of problems. And Elena did have a part in, uh, in spreading it. Another thing Elena admits in this conversation is that the thing that Cersei beat her with is how horrible— her imagination is, how how far she can go. Olymne says her biggest mistake was a lack of imagination. She just didn't know Cersei would go that far.
1: Yeah. Which, I mean, she, like many, and like many book readers, were of the belief that Cersei would be relatively easy to manipulate and defeat, that having her in position of power would just allow another easy person to manipulate or pretty quickly brush aside if she became any degree of a threat. Everyone underestimated Cersei to their detriment, as it turned out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, t- sorry about that cough there, everybody. I've got I've got a cat that's here trying to strangle me as I, as I do this podcast.
1: Your your, um, le- your level of fascism is really fun, that you have two cats and are pretty damn allergic to both of them.
0: Yeah, you no,
1: know, what I
0: am is I'm, a, I'm loyal, Spencer. You're loyal. I'm so loyal that even if I was allergic to you,
1: I'd still be your friend. That's right. Loyalty. I, I'm very deeply touched. Now, you could just take some Claritin and fix the damn problem.
0: Anyway, Jamie <laughs> pours. Uh, Jumping ahead. When he walked into the room, he poured a couple glasses of wine. He's got a glass of wine out in front of Elena. And uh, she basically, she's like, well, how will you do it? And he, he pulls out the poison and, and she says, will there be pain? Uh and, and, you know, she's, he says, no, I made sure of that. Well, then, you know, I think a little bit before that conversation. But anyway, there's there's now poison in the class. Jamie has poisoned the wine and Elena just straight houses
1: it, shotguns the wine when she finds out that it's not gonna hurt. I love that she chugs it. She's just so eager now that she's like, Okay, I just gotta tell you one last thing.
0: Yeah, and so she just chugs it down and then she launches into how Joffrey died discussing, mm-hmm. you know, the Purple Wedding, how he was Gnashing of his throat, how oh, he was purple in his face, and he was clearly in a lot of pain when he died. And then she, heel turn, says, That's not at all what I intended. And Jamie then starts to piece together what Elena's telling him. And Elena explains, you know, in in sort of indirect terms, that she was responsible for killing Joffrey. And her final line, I believe, she looks up at Jamie and says, tell Cersei I wanted to know it was me and a serious burn epic burn here top level top shelf alpha I'm about to die fuck you I killed your kid move Mm -hmm. but also I couldn't when I first listened to it I was like that's going on a t-shirt
1: yeah yeah it's (sighs) is that I we're gonna decide best quote here in a second but is there a way this one doesn't win uh, you know, Spencer, <laughs> I want to keep a,
0: a degree of uncertainty for the listeners. So they have a reason to continue to listen fine. after this hour and 40 minute mark that we're at, build, but
1: build your dramatic tension.
0: Fine. But I did, I heard that, I was like, oh man, I'm going to be at Con of Thrones next year, and I'm going to see
1: 16 vendors with, tell Cersei I want her to do <laughs> We did. show. Yeah. And I attended Con of Thrones this year, and I can tell you, there were a lot of them. <laughs> How many Queens of Thorns did we see wandering about during Con of Thrones? How many were on stage for the costume contest? I gotta tell you, if you're a little old lady, that's the move. You just gotta get that little weird head thing, you know, that she's got, I mean, and boom, you've nailed it. And some took it very, very far. I mean, there were a couple old ladies there that, hand-sewed every aspect of their outfit for that event. And rightfully I went, know, and, and some even poisoned little boys. It was it was insane. I, I thought that one went a little far. You know, I, it, 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 there were limits to how authentic you needed to be, and I thought that one crossed into certain liability areas. <laughs> All right, well that's the episode, everybody. The Queen's Justice Spencer. What'd you think of the episode? You know, I had some quibbles. As said, I've complained non-stop about the whole Grayscale plot, but Diana Rigg is a national treasure, and I'm going to miss her so much. I mean, there were just so many wonderful scenes of them showing off how many great actors they have on this show. So, did I have problems? Yes. Did I think some of the plot moments were unnecessarily brushed over or just poorly done to get characters in the same room? Yes. Did I care once this episode was over? Oh, hell no. This was quality, and I enjoyed it.
0: I agree. Um, I I remember being just really surprised at at how strong Cersei's position was after three episodes. Yeah. Um. But of course, you get reminded in the next episode that you know, like mm-hmm. Dany's got the ultimate trump card. But I, I still was surprised that 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 Cersei has played her hand as well as she did. I agree. There was some uneven moments to the episode, but I still have to say, upon rewatching, season seven better than I f- I remember. It, it's a lot better than I remember. These first three episodes are really good. There's a lot of great writing. There's a lot of great acting. There's, it's beautifully shot. They clearly put a barrel of money into it, and it sets the stage for the rest of the series uh, and included one of the best pieces of dialogue between two characters – I've ever seen with Jamie and uh, the, the Queen of
1: Thorns. Yeah, the show's been at some of its best when it's just two characters in a room talking, and this really emphasized that. I loved how much it was harkening back to earlier seasons. I loved the quality of the writing. It's the, some, some of the best writing they've had at certain moments since for possibly years. So I whatever quibbles I had, whatever difficulties I have, whatever long-term term concerns that were continuing to build up, the episode itself was still a masterstroke.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I would also say that we are at our best with two characters just in a room talking.
1: (laughs) You say that when we're already debating bringing on guest stars for later episodes. Yeah. uh, Stars
0: is a pretty strong word, but some guests anyway.
1: Come on. Trumpet them. We need to sell them. We're
0: marketing for next episode. That's right. Everybody, next episode, episode four. You've heard it here first. We will be joined by Vice President Mike Pence. Mike Pence, everybody, for Spoils of War.
1: We shade don't. Turning. We don't need to lie. Stop taking quotes from the literal Mike Pence when you're doing this. Oh snap!
0: All right, mm. all right, shade there. All right, let's get into best line. <laughs> this is where I take over. Um, I'm the the arbiter of best line. I'm gonna start throwing them out here. You throw them back at me when you have other ones, Spencer. I'm gonna start with the bastard of Winterfell, the dwarf of Crasterly Rock.
1: Great, great option. Good choice. I'm going to respond. I think we're going roughly chronologically. I'm going to respond with, this is Jon Snow, dot, 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 dot. He's king in the north. Wonderful, wonderful scene, wonderful line to encapsulate the scene. Really effectively demonstrates the differences and distinctions between two important characters.
0: Um, Here's another one from Cersei. You will have what your heart desires after the war is won. Eh,
1: eh. Eh, you know, it's fine. It's an important line, but I I don't, I don't think it holds up to the other ones, particularly with the other good ones that we have. Uh, yeah, well, I'll be the judge of that. Yeah, yeah uh, go I've got no role in this. Uh, this one's a long one, but I'm just going to do it in detail because of how damn powerful it is. Your daughter will die here in this cell, and you will be here watching when she does. You'll be here the rest of your days. If you refuse to eat, we will force food down your throat. You will live to watch your daughter rot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah oh. that one was. Whew. And oh it, I mean, it, it even continues to watch her, that beautiful face collapse to bone and dust, all while contemplating the choices you have made. Make sure the guards change the torches every few hours. I don't want her to miss a thing. Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, Cersei, man, she's like, um, God, what is she's like a she's like a rapper. Who gets in like a, a like a a battle with somebody right? Who's beefing with somebody? Mm-hmm. And then like, then like like this. So here's a good example like with Drake and Pusha T right now, right? Mm-hmm. Like Drake, you know, he hit Pusha T, you know, a little bit, but then Pusha T just took it to a level I did not I didn't know he had, mm-hmm. which was like he was like basically like well your best friend's gonna die of MS and you just are Uh, a a black-faced Uncle Tom Pantsy. Like, I was like, I heard that Pusha T verse. I was like, my God, like, he just went to another level. That's exactly what Cersei is here. She's like, she blows up the great set, and you're like, all right, that's as mean as she's going to get. And now she's like, I mean, the, the level of cruelty here toward Alaria. Now, Alaria d- does deserve some level of uh, retribution or justice here from Cersei, but man, the way she dispenses it is so harsh.
1: It, I mean, it, I had an odd, odd thought when I watched it the first time. But it almost vaguely reminded me of South Park. Remember the episode of when uh, Cartman tricks a guy into eating his own parents? <laughs> yeah. It's like, you stole $16 from me. I have your parents murdered, grind them in the chili, and feed them to you. Reasonable. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I do remember that. Oh my God. That was mean. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That's like, that's a good deep cut there, Spencer. I like that. I try. All right. Next. Um, I've got, uh, the Archmaester, uh, my BFF talking to Sam, that man is alive because of
1: you. You should be proud. That's a good one. That's a proud moment for Sam. It's one of the first times the Archmeister has given him any degree of credit. That one's important. Um, I'm going to skip little finger because honestly, I, despising what they're doing with his character uh, uh should i just basically say every aspect of diana riggs scene yeah i mean i think you should you could have um we get, you know you must be very wise by now we, we've got th- i think we've got three really good ones there i mean four mm-hmm. really i mean i think we've got uh you must be very wise by now uh what's what you what's the next one for you he really was a cut wasn't he yep that's a great one um You love her. You really do love her. You poor fool. She'll be the end of you. Uh, She's a disease. I regret everyone spreading it. You will, too. And then the last line of the episode, tell Cersei,
0: I want you to know it was me.
1: I think we've done pretty much all the ones. I don't think this one really merits it, but I I did like it of where Danny says, you know, we, uh, we we, we, uh, we enjoy what we're good at, to which John responds, I don't.
0: Yeah, that's an honorable mention. But of course, I mean, this is the Warriors in the 2017-2018 NBA season. Wasn't close. Winner. Best line of the episode. Lady Olenna. Tell Cersei. I wanted to know it was me.
1: Well done. Well deserved. Lovely. Our bo- Our Bond girl has left the show and the show will be lesser without her. I mean, I feel like some of our strongest characters have now exited the show over the last few seasons and I'm going to miss them so much.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay. Next segment. A little segment we like to call Book Nerd Bitching.
1: Take it away, Spencer. You know, I liked giving you options last time, and I think you did too. So I'm going to give you a few options. I've got basically four and a half, and you can pick three of them. How's that? I'm going to pick a half. What the hell is this? it's It's a short one. If you want me to do three and a half, I can do three and a half. But you're limiting me to three, so I got four and a half. You ready? Go. All right. First one is essentially history of betrayal in the Reach and why Randall Tarley's betrayal of the Tyrell family is, po- is a poetic, circular bit of history. And then a sub-one of that one, why the Queen of Thorns is being way too hard on her children at being good at war. That's, o- that's option one and a half. Uh, option two. Way too hard,
0: way too hard on, on her children?
1: At one point, she at- she tells Jamie, you know, she asks Jamie, how do we do? Jamie just kind of shrugs and says, as eh, well to be expected. And the Queen of Thorns responds, we have n- we were never really that good at war anyway. I dispute her conclusion. She's being way too hard. Well, sorry, on her grandchildren. Okay, I haven't selected it yet, so just keep okay. it short. I'm explaining it. Uh, option, two, <laughs> uh, option two, Iron Bank and slavery, why the Braavosi, why a bravosi institution would never engage in such a practice. Option three, uh, Jamie Lannister and the importance of a white cloak. And option four, The North and the Wildlings, Why Davos Needs to Relearn His History.
0: Oh, Uh, let's go with The Iron Bank and Slavery. Mm-hmm. Let's go with Jamie and the White Cloak. hmm And let's go with
1: Why Davos is an Illiterate Idiot. I did not go that far. I did not go that far. That's what I heard. That's what I heard. Okay. Understood. Well, in terms of the first one about the Iron Bank, the Iron Bank is notably the Iron Bank of Bravos, which is the famous free city of Essos. It's a city that formed from slaves escaping from the Valerian Freehold. The Iron Bank was one of the original institutions that they formed and has always been an institution that has been key to Bravosi policy in the world. It does fund a lot of very powerful people, but from all that we know about it, it notably is a pretty strong anti slavery institution like the Bravosi themselves. The city of Bravos has invaded its neighbors to force them to stop the practice of slavery. And so, for Circe to offer as one of her key bits of wisdom about the Iron Bank of Bravos to say that uh, Queen Danny's is opposed to slavery, you've clearly lost a lot of money in that, and him to just very flippantly go along with it that yes, we've lost some investments, doesn't really speak to what is an institution that is almost seemingly built on the subject of, we are freed slaves, we are escaped slaves, this is a practice we can never support. Uh, To the point of when one of the first things we know the um, Iron Bank of Braavos did was negotiate with the Valerian Freehold, when it still existed, to pay them back for their lost ships, from which the slaves escaped from, but notably refusing to compensate them for their lost slaves. So I think the show is trying to lump them in as being corrupt, moralist, business types, so as to make them easier to be anti-Danny. But I think they're really discrediting what we know about the institution and the city of Bravos itself.
0: I can't argue there. Uh, can't argue there. Uh, I think that if you've read the books, you would you would hear that conversation. It would strike you as weird. The free city of Bravos. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I. I don't know that I blame the show for going that route. I mean, it it, it it was an easy way for Cersei to retort that it's in you know their best interest to continue to work with her. Could they have done it another way? Probably, but take your point, Spencer. I don't veto this one. The legislation passes. It's going to the president's desk for signature.
1: I'm honored. Thank you, Speaker of the House. Um, moving on, uh, we'll we'll do a quick one with just the North and the Wildlings. At one point, Davos says in terms of emceeing Jon that. He's the first one to ever put together an alliance of the uh, North and the Wildlings before. That's just fundamentally wrong to the point that a lot of characters, I think, even on even in the show, have previously talked about the North and the Wildlings working together. That going back way, way, way in terms of history about when the Wall was built, the thir- all the way to the prequel. <laughs> yeah. This will likely be a subject this could well be the subject of the prequel that uh, the HBO is now marketing in terms of the next game of thrones show. But after the wall was built, the 13th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, who may well have been a Stark, decides to basically find him who we think is a female other north of the wall, falls in love with her, comes back to the wall, convinces all of the members of the Night's Watch to join essentially a death cult related to worship of the others and declares himself the Night's King. A term that show only fans are very well aware of, as being apparently on the show, the leader of the others, going back to, I guess, their creation. I mean, they've been pretty clear on the show that the Knight's King is like the original other, right? Yeah, he's the OG other. Yeah, we saw him with the uh, with the plant babies. Well, I mean, in the books, that title seems to be reserved for a guy, a human guy that we can very clearly identify. Is that a corrupted member of the Night's Watch who went to a certain degree of evil. In terms of defeating him, it's well known that Brandon the Breaker, the King of Winter, the Stark king at the time, allied with the King Beyond the Wall, the Wildlings, Joramon, to put together a joint coalition that attacked the the, uh, the Wall from both sides. And together, they successfully defeated the defeated the Night's King, overthrew the Night's Watch, and killed his Night's Queen, so as to free the Night's Watch of what was corrupting them. Now. The Stark King, in recognition for their important role they played in this victory, then promptly threw all the wildling forces north of the wall and locked the door. But this was clearly an historical event by which the wildlings and the, the wildlings in the north allied together. And it's even something I think Jon Snow uses to try to convince people that what he's doing is not that novel or that outside of reasonable expected boundaries. Now, it would be, would uh, Davos a relatively uneducated peasant from um, the bottom of from flea bottom and King's Landing know about this? Maybe not. Would pedantic Tyrion and Danny have called him out on that? Hell yeah. And the show has made it perfectly clear. This is part of the show's history. It's even a conversation that John and uh, Ygritte have back in like season two.
0: Yeah. I mean, so I think you've, you've, Basically, so you did yet again your press secretary uh, routine, which you're getting quite good at. I'm gonna I'm gonna pass your resume along to, to Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Thank you. Um, because you hit the point that I think is a fair one, which is well, actually that's not true. I would argue that like the intent of what Davos is trying to say is these were two sides that for a very, very long time were fractured and were at war, and he brought them together. He just didn't do it in the most eloquent way, which gets to your counterpoint that you ended with, which is, of course, Davos wouldn't know this. I mean, hell, he just learned how to read like when he was like had his AARP card. So, I mean, he just, he's not been around the block with this stuff. Uh, I will say that I think this is going to come up, um, the history of the Northmen and the Wildlings in mm-hmm. the prequel very much so uh, because the prequel my understanding is prequels about the long night I mean, and uh that that very much is just uh to me a large component of that is going to be how did the north survive yeah and it had to be in conjunction with the wildlings so this is a very relevant topic uh again not vetoing on to the president next I, one
1: i respect it and i'm just pointing out that you know given how pedantic danny was being of where she even asked tyrion to define the term in uh, what was it in perpetuity or what was the term that she asked him to define or forever or something in perpetuity Um, in perpetuity. And then, um, yeah. And then brought up Torin Stark. They were all very well aware of history and she was trying to weaken their position anywhere that she could. So they would have called him out reasonably, but whatever, doesn't matter. Uh, the importance of a white cloak. Uh, let's remember a key little detail that the show itself said, you remember back in like season, I think it's three or four, of when Jaime and Tywin have a conversation in a room and Tywin demands that Jaime leave the uh, Kingsguard and go become ruler of Castly Rock. Yes. And notably, Jaime refuses, saying that he is first and foremost a member of the Kingsguard. Um, Did he refuse? He refuses, and to which Tywin gives him his sword and says, you'll need that. A man alone in the world needs such things. Was that the same
0: time that Tywin was, it, it was like in conjunction? He was basically saying, you need to go to Casterly Rock and Roll
1: and Cersei, you need to marry Loras Tyrell? Uh, yeah, that's roughly about that same period. Gotcha. Okay. So a key aspect they built up of Jamie's character is that he is a member of the Kingsguard. When was the last time anywhere on this show that we've either seen him in a Kingsguard uniform or express himself as the commander of the Kingsguard?
0: Uh, when Tommen stripped him of his Kingsguard status. Balls. Forgot about that entirely. Did he? Oh my gosh. Three pointer. All right. Uh, I, I actually, that. Yes. Tommen, Tommen stripped him of his Kingsguard. Remember he got really mad. And he like threw it at his feet.
1: Okay. I actually do remember that now. Here's, here's my actual point about it though. My actual point about it is the key aspect of Jamie's character growth over the course of the books. And they were building up this over the last few seasons was the fact that a white cloak is a key aspect of a person that wearing those kind of symbols, that having that kind of aspect of your character is an important part of reforming you and developing you, and that he actually has a massive degree of pride in where that drives him. By eliminating that aspect of his character, by minimizing that aspect of his character even before Tommen took it away from him, they have delayed Jamie's character growth for about the last, what, four years? That a character growth, which is one of the most impressive, important, and well-written events in the entire books has essentially been diluted for... I guess the purpose of keeping Cersei a central character and making her actually a credible threat because Jamie himself has essentially, I don't know. when was the, I don't know. when was the last aspect of of dramatic character growth we had out of Jamie in years? He's been kind co- I think, yeah, I, mean, I think that
0: he's, that that's the point is that he's stuck in a bad relationship. I mean um, the, the I'm pretty points. sure like everybody listening has been there, you're in a bad relationship, and you're not growing either professionally, personally, with your friends, whatever, because you're propping up somebody who's sort of a leech on you, and that's what he is. And I agree, it goes on a long time. And it's probably a little bit unrealistic, considering how headstrong Jamie is, especially if you consider book Jamie, mm-hmm. but I do think it sets up for some really satisfying moments this season.
1: I, I'm ultimately going to disagree with you that here. I feel like the scenes of this season are far too long-coming and far too token. I think like the Queen of Thorns is even effectively calling out the writers with talking about why are you still bound by her? You know what she's doing. You friggin' killed a king for threatening less. What? He's g- stuck in a bad relationship, Spencer. I, th- I think that is a weak explanation for why he is where he is, and I think it's an unnecessary use of what is otherwise a very powerful and compelling character. Giving him his own story, giving him his own plotline, gives him an independent direction. Right now, he essentially exists as Cersei's prop, and that's always done for years. Well, you started this one by not remembering a pretty crucial scene in the show.
0: You ended it by uh, saying something I disagree with. This one gets vetoes. It gets vetoed. It goes back to Congress for a, uh, a two-third supermajority vote. Sorry about that one. Uh, well, two, two-thirds.
1: I can change the Constitution at this point.
0: <laughs> oh,
1: God. It's too real. It's too right. real. Well, do we have anything else to close things out with? I think we've had a good long rant for this episode.
0: Yeah. No. Good book nerd bitching, love the episode, one of my favorite scenes, um, sets up pretty well. Really exciting one uh, for us next week, episode four, Spoils of War, with the, the named
1: Loot Train attack, but it actually is a pretty cool sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking forward to that, Spencer, anything else you want to add? No, I think we've talked enough, and I'm definitely looking forward to talking about the next, next episode. Should we introduce our potential guest star, or should it be a surprise for when that occurs?
0: Uh, we don't have that lined up yet, so oh, no. Um, all right, everybody. Uh, you can check us out at MangumTalk.com on Twitter, at MangumTalks, or on our Mangum Talks Facebook page. Until next week, see you. Till then.